And I was just uh, yesterday. I was. I, I was. Uh, I've come here from North Carolina, and I sat down with um, Randall Carlson, who yes, has been. I met him. You met Randall. Yeah, he's very, very guy. fascinating man, yeah. and he's been working away quietly on this subject for years and years and years, long before the evidence was in for a comet. He was predicting that this is what caused it, that there was a comet impact, and he's got this very, very fascinating theory. And he's going to take me next year on a on a field trip uh, into the Pacific Northwest and into Canada uh, to look at to look at areas where there were these massive outflows of floods from the ice cap. And what Randall is suggesting is that, that at least some large fragments of the comet that hit the Earth 12,980 years ago actually hit the ice cap. They, they landed on the ice cap, which was still then a mile deep, and they pulverized it. They turned it into water immediately, and that's why you have these gigantic outburst floods which carry down huge boulders and strew them all over the, all over the landscape. It's a very, very exciting theory, and it's, and it's great to see Randall's work being, being vindicated because he's been ignored for far too long, and I'm, I'm looking forward to doing a fascinating field trip with him next, next year. Following the margin of the great ice sheets with the objective of demonstrating that the melting of that happened extremely fast and literally created oceans of meltwater that swept over the land. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Gramerica Show. First uh, episode out of 2015, uh, fittingly, is Randall Carlson 2.0. Uh, but first, the. Uh, Gleeful ground unlock. How was your holiday, buddy? Hey, man. <clears throat> nice and relaxing, actually. A little too lazy, probably. Lots of movies. Went to the show a couple times. Cinema? Yeah, did you go? No. There's did a, I? Oh, money went. No, not over the holidays. There no. is a ton of ads this year, all of a sudden now. I, I remember last year, there was, it wasn't too bad. There was maybe two or three ads. Even the IMAX now, 20 minutes of ads. I'm never like, there early enough for that. Like, if I am, I, I hit the arcade. 15 minutes of, no, like 15 ads. It's getting ridiculous. Hollywood must be in trouble. Like, it's it's ludicrous, the amount of ads. Ain't that a bitch. Yeah. Yeah, no, I didn't uh, do yeah, nothing no. like that. Yeah, no. I did nothing like that. Nothing <laughs> of the sort. Yeah. I watched a couple movies at, uh, at home, too. It was pretty I watched cool. the interview. Did you? How was it? It was all right, I guess. It was yeah. pretty good. I mean, it probably would have been funnier if I wouldn't have, if there wasn't all the bullshit hype going into it, right? Yeah. Like, if I would have just seen it, it probably would have been a lot funnier. But then you're going into it expecting more of it, but it was all right, I guess. Yeah. Did it seem silly at all? Oh, yeah, of course it's fucking silly. It? Yeah. It's fucking... Seth? Seth fucking Rogan and fucking <laughs> James fucking Franco. <laughs> fucking... Enough of the F-bombs. <laughs> I got some feedback if you want to hear it. Feedback? Yeah. What sort? Good feedback, man. Positive? Yeah, most of our... I love the feedback we get from our listeners. Sure. Todd Todd from the Others Report, uh, we met him at, uh, at the symposium at Paradigm Symposium, and he says, you guys are awesome, I'm hooked. I listen weekly and can't help but to laugh out loud during your openings and closings, so 
Um, yeah, man, I'm glad he listens. And I wanted to plug the others report app because I've been kind of hooked on his app too. It's, uh, <clears throat> it gathers all the, a lot of MUFON reports. Well, he puts out all these MUFON reports and then it gathers all these other news stories from all these other sites, even mysterious universe blogs, news stories from anything around, you know, consciousness, the paranormal spirituality. And I've been looking at his app like every, almost every day now, find some cool stuff in there. So. Thanks for the app, Todd, and thanks for the feedback. So check out the Others Report app. Others Report. He tweets like every six seconds, right? Bingo, yeah. bingo, 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 bingo. <laughs> well, yeah, I his... check how many tweets those fuckers have, actually. <clears throat> He's probably got it on an automatic algorithm or something. Yeah, I think he does. He was saying that. Keep talking. Those smart guys. I don't know how they do it. Uh, got some more feedback. I'm going to stick with the feedback, and I got a synchronicity for you, too. 46,000 tweets. Wow. How many have you done? Like, Great America. 13,000. That's it? Really? Yeah. So we got a, we got a rating here from uh, Curtis K. That good uh, feedback in iTunes. He says, I've been listening to you guys since episode one. I find your opening banter incredibly entertaining, and it adds a more, more human, less sterile aspect to the show. Your interview style, or actually lack of style, and improvised method of conversation, it's incredibly refreshing. And I think it allows you to take the topic to greater depths than anybody out there, excluding Hidden Experience, uh, which is Mike Cleland. We know about that one. Uh, he says, you guys and Mike are the best. Darren, I love your healthy skepticism and grandiose Graham. I love your complete sense of wonder and willingness to see, see mysterious ways of everyday life. Thank you guys for all the work you do for all of us. Pretty good review. Thanks, man. Thanks, Curtis. Thanks, Curtis. Uh, yeah, that's pretty awesome. And you're welcome. <laughs> Darren's not really truly as skeptical as he comes across. He's actually, you know, a bit of a, a believer. He's just I'm trying to be skeptical. <laughs> Uh, so uh, pot kettle caller. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm pretty skeptical. Yeah, yeah. I'm growing more skeptical. I know. What's with that? I don't know. Mike, I can't. Micah Hanks always says that too. Back. Yeah, but I don't know. There's so much evidence I'm, out there. Not really. I'm growing more skeptical about some things some, and less right. skeptical about others. Right. Well, what would you be coming less skeptical about? I don't know. Let's save that Big for foot? the hundredth episode. <laughs> Look, we can talk about all that shit. Okay, let's episode. let's do that. Yeah, we're gonna. We were just talking before we started recording here about maybe our hundredth episode will just be uh, Darren and I, and maybe uh, Red Pill Junkie and and Justin or something for a quick little bit. But we'll just uh, we'll have we'll be guest lists. Guest list that night. Guest list. Yeah. We're on the guest list. Yeah, guest list. Guest list. Yeah. So I got synchronicity for you. You got your uh, rating system ready. Which jingo am I going to play? I don't know. Whatever one you want. <laughs> I'm a rambling gram with synchronicities <laughs> all over the web. And Darren is skeptical about everyone and don't believe it yet. Nice. Love that jingle. So this is, uh, this is from Mike, Mike C. And he says he wanted to share uh, one of his experiences with synchronicity. 
He was watching a lecture from Noam Chomsky, and he mentioned a book called Jesus the Magician. This book looks for proof of the historical Jesus using sources which did not believe in Jesus, Son of God, but Jesus the Magician. The subject is of interest to him, and the book's name always sat in the back of his mind. Fast forward a year, and I'm in an antique store with an ex-girlfriend of mine. Normally, he stops at antique stores to pick up some records wherever he is. The stranger, the better. So he notices a single slim bookshelf in the middle of the floor, and he makes his way over to it. Right at eye level, there was a puke green hardcover book with faded gold lettering on the binder, which read Jesus the Magician. I couldn't believe it. Turned out, it is a first edition copy of a book, of the book in relatively good condition. My ex could hardly believe it because I mentioned this book more than a few times through over the last year. Fascinating read, which puts Jesus in Egypt learning from the court of Magi during the years of his life that are unaccounted for in the Bible. He says, love the show, guys. Don't get to listen live, but he catches the show on YouTube. And he's listening to the Lucid Dreaming show right now. So I hope you're still uploading these to YouTube. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm like on the ball now. Sweet. Get another task I perform. <laughs> hey, Once yeah. you get your Mac, I'll teach you how. Yeah, okay. I don't want to further, yeah, okay. I don't want to further burden your my your workload PC. already. Yeah, no, your PC. It's not my PC, buddy. I got enough to do as it is. You were going to show me how, but so, uh, so he also I didn't notice this before. Did you put email. a sign on the door? <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> um. I didn't notice this at the end of his email. He says, uh, P.S. Here's a good technique Robert Anton Wilson wrote about for lucid dreaming. While awake, whenever you see a clock or a watch, ask yourself what time is it and are you dreaming or not? You'll end up conditioning yourself to do this while dreaming and be able to recognize you are in fact dreaming. I know this guy. As a child, I used to look at my hands a few times while dreaming to lucid dream because I would tell myself before going to sleep, my hands would signal I was in a dream. So that's a good tip. What guy do you it's know? It's way less weirder than the, I know the guy, the listener. I've seen him oh, comment before. Cool. I can put the name to the name to the comment. Yeah. The clock, the clock thing's cool. I'm going to try that because that's whenever you look at the time goal, what time is it? Am I dreaming? Cause I, you know, otherwise it's like, as you go through a doorway, you say, what time is it? You say am you I dreaming? Less weird. You don't, you don't have to say it out loud in front of people. You can just say it in your no, head. I think I'm you need to say it out loud. Really? I think that's important. Really? Uh, um, or light switches. Sometimes people do that with light switches, right? When yeah. You turn light switch Again, on. that's another one. Okay, if you're like home alone, you like can't be walking around the office turning the lights on. <laughs> oh, what are you doing? I, I, could, I, just, I just tell people I'm, learning, I'm, I'm teaching myself I'm how to lucid dream. Just, just checking to see if I'm dreaming. Yeah. What's wrong with that? It's fucking weird. Why? People appreciate that. If now. someone fucking walked into my office and did that, I'd say, you get the fuck back to work and take your head out of the cloud. You don't <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It We're seems not here like... to practice lucid fucking dreaming. <laughs> yeah. In your office, it does seem a little flaky, but in mine, I don't know. I don't really care. <laughs> so, right. so sticking around that, uh, on that for a sec, there's a, uh, do you want to be a part of the world's largest clairvoyance experience? What's that? Well, this guy uh, named, uh, what is his name? It's, uh, what? No, he's, uh, 
Sorry, just a sec here. It's, uh, this is an article out of Vice, actually. I saw it on another website, but they got it from Vice, and it's by Rock Morin. And uh, it is an app called Shadow. So basically, it's going to collect dreams from all around the world. And people can update their dreams into this, and it'll be time-stamped and all that, right? So you'll be able to collect all this data and show that there's precognition happening in dreams, right? Like, you know how a bunch of people say they had dreams about 9-11? Well, if this app was active back then, you would have been able to see that there was an inordinate amount of people lucid dreaming about this event, right? So So we'll be able to start proving precognitive dreams are actually happening, right? Seems kind of scary, though, monitoring your dreams. So is and his, it anonymous? His name is Hunter Lee Soik. Is it anonymous, Hunter Lee Soik? An- anonymous? Oh, I don't know. It could be anonymous, I guess. What, what does it matter? It have to be. Why? No, I just don't like the idea of the band having access to my dreams. Whole new level. Of yeah, then you'll be able to tell, like, who's dreaming the same stuff you're dreaming, and, like, is it collective? Are my you collectively dreams are my dreaming? My business. So. You don't even remember your dreams. <laughs> <laughs> so my sister was dream- this morning. I read this article and my sister texted me and she was dreaming about being in an earthquake. And she said that, uh, what would she say? It was in, she was in this earthquake and it was on native lands and she works uh, in Vancouver on Vancouver Island now. <clears throat> um, and there was an earth. So she Googled it and it was an earthquake on North Vancouver Island yesterday. Weird, eh? So, like, if, you know, she recorded that, it could have been, well, it was kind of a post-cognitive dream. Yeah, it's probably more like her subconscious noticed it someplace when she was yeah. zipping through her Twitter or Facebook. I wonder. Or hey, yeah, yeah. See, that's what the skeptics would say. <laughs> and I'm the skeptic. That's right. Anyways, I'm going to check out that app. Shadow, it's called. And uh, it's got a lot of potential, man. They've already got, like, 7,000 people uh, doing it. 7,000 suckers. Yeah. One born every minute, as they say. That's right. So what was, uh, now I forget what the synchronicity was. Oh my God. Yeah, you didn't rate it. It was about the book, uh, Jesus the Magician. Yeah, just give me the gist of it. The gist of it or the gist of it? Just, just, the gist, just the gist. <sighs> I think I already closed it down. So he, he was uh, watching a Noam Chomsky lecture, right? And Noam was talking about a book called Jesus the Magician. And it's not about Jesus, Jesus the religious guy, but what happened to Jesus before that, right? Like at uh, learning from the court of Magi, right? In Egypt prior to being in the Bible. So then he went to that old antique store with his ex-girlfriend and right smack in the middle with faded gold lettering on puke green uh, binder was that book. Obviously pretty rare book founded in an antique store. He doesn't go in there for books. He goes in there for old records. I don't get the synchronicity. He was looking for it. He wanted to buy the book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's always he been talking to about find it on Amazon. No, he didn't he didn't talk about the search. He just said the book was always in the back of his mind. It was an interest, you know, subject that interested him. So he wasn't actually like searching. Well, eventually he was gonna fucking run Stop. into the book someplace. When, no. Who runs across Jesus the Magician? Eh? No. Have you ever heard the book even? No. It's pretty rare that you just run into the book that you've been thinking about for the last year. Is it? Yeah. I don't, I disagree. You can disagree. That's fine. (laughs) I do. I disagree. 
I think that I, I can have a book in the back of my head too. Well, what's a chance you're going to stumble I'm gonna across stumble it? Stumble across it someplace. Uh, oh, no, you're not. You always stumble across shit you're looking for. And those aren't synchronicities, then? You're just calling them coincidences, or? I don't know what I'm calling them. I guess <laughs> I'm calling it fucking finding what you were looking for. So, well, he ma- maybe he manifested it then. Yeah, it's a four, and that's a that's a. Super fucking what? Nice four. Oh, nice four. Okay. Four. Okay. Hey, I wanted to. I wanted What's to... his name? Sorry, Tom. <laughs> it's not Tom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so hey, uh, just moving into this new year. I mean, I wanted to say I think that we are living in truly fascinating times. I know you hear that. Uh, that's that old Chinese proverb and all that, but. Um, I was just reading this this article, and it really makes me think, we are really living in the most exciting time. Okay. Just simple, like, I want to read to you the top 10 archaeological discoveries of 2014. I know it's like this top 10 thing. I know we don't usually talk about that type of stuff, but we don't even really talk about news articles. But So you're, you're doing a top 10 list right now? Yeah, man. Just, just I'm just going to read the headlines. I'm not going to go into details, but just to give us an idea of, like, just within a year, right? All the shit that's going on in the background, all the research that's being done, all the crazy things people are finding. And this isn't like conspiratorial stuff at all. This is like journal of nature. This is from, uh, the journal of, um, the national Academy of sciences, their journal proceedings. Like this is like mainstream shit, right? Number 10. Ready? (laughs) 4,000 year old sunken ship found in Turkey is among the oldest in the world. Number nine. Is uh, newly dated Asian cave drawings rewrite the history of human art? That's talking about a a 40,000 year old cave drawings. Mysterious man made ditches predate Amazon rainforest. Fucking iPad died. Hey? What? The iPad died. The iPad died? Good. I don't get to be distracted by your crazy clips. Are you listening to me? I'm listening. Fuck. The largest known megalithic block from antiquity revealed at Baalbek. That's that other, that massive one that's like a couple hundred tons bigger than the one that's beside it. 500,000 year old shell engraved by Homo erectus challenges previous beliefs about human ancestors. Number five is the oldest known human genome, genome sequence. Sheds light on interbreeding with Neanderthals. <laughs> you gotta do something, eh? Number four is uh, the new pharaoh discovered in Egypt, introducing King Seneb K. Number three, archaeologi- archaeologists discover two long-lost ancient Maya cities in the jungle of Mexico. Number two is a spectacular Macedonian tomb and human remains unearthed in Amphipolis, Greece. Amphipolis? Amphipolis? How's it spelled? Amphipolis. A M F. No. A M P H I P O L I S. Amphipolis. In Greece. Oh, uh, yeah. A big, um, yeah, human remains in a Macedonian tomb. Wow. And then radar finds hundreds more megalithic monuments, chapels, and shrines around Stonehenge. So, yeah, pretty exciting stuff. Eh? That's just 2014, so 
uh, as technology grows and, and people start opening up uh, in this age of information, 2015 should be a good one. No comment? Well, yeah. I, I mean, that's know. just like a, that's just scratching the surface. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to see when they really start. When I wonder when we get the technology to really start checking around the coastline. Yeah, I know with that uh, <coughs> ground penetrating radar and shit. <coughs> Water penetrating sonar. Oh, yeah. What's it called? LIDAR? I don't know. Yeah, it could be LIDAR. Seems like or being able to fucking just like take pictures or something, you know what I yeah, mean? Some yeah, sort of technology yeah. that we can just totally see exactly what the ocean floor looks like. Yeah, that would be cool. You know, for the first some places it could be for miles, you know, like some places in Florida and shit. I don't know, like how far do you have to go out before it drops below four hundred feet deep? Yeah, yeah. Like so when when Randall Carlson talks about like pre pre-flood right like pre that that change after the the last ice age like how much shit is actually covered by water now right that used to be above ground above sea level right exactly huh. yeah that'll be it that'll be interesting huh. so we got randall carlson coming up all right, you ready? Sightings of unexplained objects at great altitude and traveling at high speeds in the vicinity of major U.S. defense installations are of such nature that they are not attributable to natural phenomena or known types of aerial vehicles. And that's from Dr. H. Marshall Chadwell, formal, former assistant director of the CIA's Office of Scientific Intelligence. In a December 1952 memo to the then director of the CIA, General Walter B. Smith. Bada bing, bada boom. I like, I love, I love those old CIA ones. Yeah. 1952. Central Intelligence Agency. We need to have a CIA guy out. Yeah, I don't know. Last time uh, <clears throat> I heard a CIA guy on Rogan, it was kind of, I don't know. I think it was kind of. A oh, smoke yeah, yeah, yeah. He, wouldn't, he wouldn't screen. say anything. You're a smoke screen. Yeah. Or something. Not quite sure what, but <laughs> something. Uh, support the show, of course. I know we did. I did, did actually just get, uh, yeah. we got a couple, couple donations today. Uh, oh, did I? Yeah. Sweet. One was 25 bucks. Yeah, well, that was, was that Mark H? I sent him a t-shirt there. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, you did send that yeah. t-shirt off? Well, I then. did, yep. I got, uh, no, it was, I'm not going to say his whole name, but it was Michael. Thanks, Michael. But it didn't, uh, he didn't, sometimes it provides an address, sometimes it doesn't, and there was no note. So if Michael wants a t-shirt. So if Michael wants a t-shirt, let us know. Um, and yeah, subscribe to the Grow America Show. Support our value for value model america.ca slash moneybomb I think that's about it we can do the rest of the house cleaning in the outro right uh, you guys know them you guys love them yeah and we uh, if this thing comes out in time there's a a webinar Randall Carlson uh, the hunt for the cosmic grail type stuff all kinds of symbolism oh, where's the note I have about it here 
Yeah, it's uh, coming up on January 4th and January 11th. The Quest for the Cosmic Grail, Recovering Lost History, World Special Webinar featuring Randall Carlson. So don't miss that if this comes out in time. Otherwise, uh, it'll come out definitely before the January 11th one. So, yeah, enjoy this chat with Randall. I could guys making uh, his return appearance to Grand America this afternoon uh, much to delight this is uh, we've got a ton of feedback he's by far our most popular episode both on YouTube and um, and on the podcast so uh, yeah we're pretty excited how's it going buddy hey not too bad doing well yeah I'm, I'm excited about this too of course we've been looking forward to it for a while as Darren said he's been one of our most popular episodes and uh, Graham Hancock's even praising him as an unsung genius so we we knew this was going to happen, and we were trying to get him at Paradigm Symposium last year. It looks like he's going to be at Paradigm Symposium this year, but we have Randall Carlson back, somewhat of a renegade scholar. He's been searching for, you know, f- over four decades now, uncovering this secret story and kind of hidden in plain sight about natural cataclysms and stuff like that. They've got a great uh, thing we're going to link to here, YouTube and a DVD coming out on cosmic patterns and cycles of catastrophe. It's, it's truly mind-blowing stuff. It's got some sacred geometry in there, too. And uh, you guys have a webinar coming up as well that we're going to talk about. And Randall's just been traveling around uh, North America with Graham Hancock, and he's got uh, some influence on Graham's new book, I believe. And uh, we got lots of stuff to talk about. So welcome back to Graham America, Randall. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for putting up with me again. <laughs> yeah, we've been, look- we've been looking forward to it. Um, so I suppose we'd love to start with, uh, with um, obviously, it seems like your work is tying in so much with Graham Hancock's and, and, he's, his, and um, his work's tying in with yours, and that's, that's going to be pretty exciting. How was, uh, how was the, the trip and the expedition? I, I hear the weather wasn't the greatest, but other than that, um, how was the time spent with Graham uh, traveling across the country? Oh, it was wonderful. It really was. We had a great time. Um, yeah, the the weather was not on our side. We picked up a, you know, we picked up the rain here in Portland, and it followed us all the way to Minneapolis. So I think we had one day where we had a break. Uh, but yeah, so pretty much, you know, all of my photographs are, you know, pretty dark. We got a, yeah, a lot of rain. Sometimes, you know, all day long raining. So it it, it put a sort of put a crimp in our in our efforts but overall it was really good i mean we had um wonderful encounters with wildlife uh i've done a lot of traveling out west and seen a lot of wildlife but for some reason i don't know i guess the 
the encounters with wildlife sort of made up for the fact that it was raining. You know, we had encounters with bears and elk and wow. uh, mountain sheep and, and uh, yeah, uh, a lot of different, a lot of um, uh, several chipmunks. So, yeah, <laughs> we, we had uh, encounters with a lot, a lot of wildlife. Um, and, then some cra- and then some crazy guys from Calgary when you got to the symposium. Yeah, that well, that was the, yeah, that was the real wildlife of the trip. We got to Minneapolis. That was fun yeah. times. So, uh, yeah, so it was it was great. I mean, we we zigzagged uh, our way from Portland uh, east um, up the Columbia Gorge, uh, across the Channel Scab lands, across northern Idaho, uh, Montana. We hit North and South Dakota, and then wound our way around and ended up in Minneapolis. And essentially what we were doing was more or less following the edge of the great ice sheets that, you know, disappeared 12 and 13,000 years ago, studying the effects of the massive meltdown that plays right into to Graham Hancock's uh, thesis about a mother civilization and the nature of the catastrophe that erased it from the earth. So I had been studying that stuff for many years and you know he's been looking at the uh, he's been looking at the evidence for for great catastrophes because what he's been focusing on primarily is the uh, is the archaeology of these ancient civilizations and the evidence that there have been uh, fairly sophisticated civilizations in prehistory and of course he's been <clears throat> savaged by mainstream academics uh, one of the the, the main charges that that they've leveled against him is the fact that, you know, they would usually say the usual refrain is, well, if there was any advanced civilization in prehistory, and we're talking, you know, 7,000 to 10,000 years ago and longer, even 15 or 20,000 years ago, if there was this civilization, where's the evidence? Where's the hard evidence? Where's the, you know, where's the pottery? Where's the, 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 the statuary? Where is the Where's the evidence? And, of course, there is evidence. And, and what's interesting <laughs> is that, you know, he's now been researching um, Gobekli Tepe in, in um, Turkey and Ganang Padang in Indonesia. And these do appear to be hard evidence for large megalithic structures that are at least eleven or 12,000 years old. And, of course, there is other evidence, a lot of evidence in, that his been out there on the fringes and has not really been endorsed by mainstream academia, such as the the weathering on the Sphinx that I think we talked about. And it's kind of been, um, people have been aware of for about 20 years now because of the work of John Anthony West, that the Sphinx has uh, severe water erosion on it. And there hasn't been any major uh, rainfall to cause severe water erosion in Egypt in at least 10,000 years. So the hard evidence is, is out there but it's it's not abundant. But it's as we learn more and get better abilities to you know ground penetrating radar and ability to see things from uh, a higher perspective, we're discovering that there is more and more evidence of uh, a prehistoric phenomena that has heretofore gone more or less unrecognized, except by so-called fringe researchers. Anyways, he's been focusing primarily on the evidence for a lost civilization, and I've been focusing primarily on the evidence for catastrophism in the history of the Earth, and including catastrophes in recent human history. 
And so it dovetails exactly with what he's doing because what I've been looking at certainly provides an explanation why a culture that may have existed 10 or 12 or 15,000 years ago would essentially have been erased with very little remains to, for us to discover today. So I was trying to uh, familiarize him with some of the evidence for these amazing catastrophes that have occurred and, and also to show him that uh, 10 to 12,000 years ago when the, uh, the Great Ice Age came to an end, uh, catastrophically, uh, North America appeared to have been ground zero in the last great global catastrophe. And um, and so that's kind of what the, the essence of our trip was about. So we were looking at, at um, following the margin of the great ice sheets with the objective of demonstrating that the melting of that happened extremely fast and uh, literally created oceans of meltwater that swept over the land, basically erasing everything that was in its path. And, and, um, and that differs from the mainstream uh, paradigm because they, they think it was a slow melt. Like they're, they're obviously, oh, not, not so much anymore. Um, up until 20, 30 years ago, yes. But even, even going back to the 50s and 60s, evidence was starting to emerge that, that the whole transition had been extremely fast, faster than anybody had, had really uh, imagined previous. A big turning point came in the early 1990s when uh, American teams and European teams extracted ice cores from Greenland that provided a year-by-year -year proxy for climate change. And <clears throat> This was the early 90s. The results of that started getting published in 93, 94, right in there. And the evidence from those ice cores was pretty, pretty unequivocal that climate had changed extremely fast, um, as much as 10 to 15 degrees centigrade, perhaps in a decade or less. Um, if I say 10 degrees centigrade, I'm talking about 18 degrees Fahrenheit. And this is... Um, just an enormous, enormous temperature swing, and, and there were multiple temperature swings. So in the early 90s, you know, scientists were becoming aware of the fact that, that this had happened. But what's been going on since then is the evidence continues to accumulate that, yeah, uh, we have to recognize that the history of this planet that we live on has not been a smooth, gradual continuum, changing one grain of sand and one drop of water at a time. But is periodically punctuated by these intense, extreme, rapid events that completely alter the balance of planetary nature. And this, to me, is, is one of the most important things that we need to come to terms with uh, in our own future. Because once we look back at the record now that we can reconstruct for climate change for the last quarter million years, what we discover is that there are periods of uh, where the world is is... Uh, subjected to these intense glaciations like uh, ended 12,000 years ago. Bear in mind that when we're talking about this last ice age, I'll use the term late Wisconsin to talk about the last phase of the American ice age. Okay. Named after the state of Wisconsin where the early uh, geologists and glaciologists studied, first studied it. So when I talk about the late Wisconsin, I'm talking about a period that lasted from roughly 26,000 years ago to about 13,000 years ago. And it was during this period that ice reached from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. It covered virtually all of Canada. It extended into the northern United States, 
where you guys are now, interestingly, at Calgary, was situated in between the two great North American ice sheets, the Cordilleran ice sheet, which would have been to your west, and the Laurentide ice sheet, which would have been to your east. The Laurentide ice sheet was the bigger of the two. It was perhaps four or five million square miles of ice covering Canada up to two miles thick, up to two miles thick. To your west was the Cordilleran ice sheet that blanketed all of the Canadian Rockies and filled all of the mountain valleys of uh, the Canadian Rockies thousands of feet thick with ice. And right where you're at in Calgary was the zone in between these two ice sheets. So it's a very interesting place. Um, I understand that you guys went and visited Okotoks, the big rock. You bet. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so there you were looking at an 18,000-ton mega quartzite boulder that was transported some maybe 250 miles from Mount Robeson where it originated. And right there, that rock is a testimony to an extremely cataclysmic event, an event that could quarry an 18,000-ton boulder, transport it over the continental divide from west to east, and then transport it another 200 miles south and dump it on the prairie. So that in itself is an interesting mystery. And the only way really that it makes sense to explain it is that it was a multiple phase catastrophe where you had landslide, because bear in mind, remember that rock that you guys saw is only one of a train of hundreds of these giant boulders that reach from the mouth of the Athabasca River where it comes out of the uh, Rockies near Jasper Park. Uh, all the way into Montana. So those hundreds of boulders were quarried off of Mount Robeson, which appears to be the the mountain that has that same type of metaquartzite rock, carried over the Continental Divide and and dumped in a line 500 miles along the prairie. And if you look at it, if you t- did you take pictures of the rock? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah, okay. we've actually had a few pictures sent in from uh, various listeners that have gone since the episode. Excellent. If you look at that rock, you'll see that it has it is it's not a typical glacially transported rock, which which would grind off the sharp corners on it. You you notice that it had edges and sharp corners. Yeah. And it was also three chunks, three pieces of rock that were originally one big rock. And it had to get carried several hundred miles without being typically ground like glacial rocks are, without those pieces being separated until it was deposited. And there's only one way that you can do that, and that would be to transport it aboard an iceberg. <clears throat> and then that iceberg has to be carried in a flow of water. Now, the iceberg that would be necessary to, to transport an 18,000-ton boulder is probably on the size of a tanker ship. And the, the water necessary to carry that size of iceberg would be one hell of a river. We're probably looking at flows that were hundreds of feet deep <clears throat> and, and would have passed in that corridor down between these two great ice sheets. And then that, then that brings the question of how do you quarry that much rock and dump it onto the ice sheets, then break up those ice sheets into the form of icebergs and then melt enough of the ice sheets so that you've got enough water to transport those giant icebergs that are carrying the giant rocks. So it's a very, very interesting phenomenon. And I think it, again, comes down to the fact that what it's pointing to is one hell of a catastrophe. So, I wonder if that's what that, happened out by Drumheller, too, because I went out there again. I took the kids out there 
oh, maybe a month and a half ago. And it's like when you're coming up on that town, you don't even fucking know it's there. It's like you can look right over top of it, and then the whole town's built down in that giant gully. Oh, hell yeah. And you can Wrong just see all there. the sediment, all the lines down the side of it. In Washington, you mean? Uh, no, in Alberta. It's about an hour and oh. a half northeast of Calgary. Okay. It's where the dinosaur museum is. It's where they found all the dinosaur bones. Right. Okay. Yeah, I have not been there. Now, there is a drumheller in Washington State, which is very interesting because that was part of the Missoula flood flows. Um, the, what's called the drumheller channels, where you had a uh, uh, one of these meltwater streams flowing across that area that was 10 miles wide and 400 feet deep <laughs> and did some interesting geomorphic work. You can, you can see it very clearly going to Google Earth. And anybody who's listening that wants to check out some of this stuff, uh, Google Earth is a tremendous tool. You can go there. And in this area that, that, that Hancock and I were looking at in southeastern Washington is called the Channel Scablands. And the Drumheller Channels that I just mentioned is part of this Channel Scabland complex, which is this what is called an anastomosing uh, pattern or branched pattern of erosional gullies that are massive. Um, you had water flows coming off the ice sheets that were measured in hundreds of millions of cubic feet per second, which is, which is huge, huge. I mean, you know, the biggest recent flood in North American history was the great Minnesota flood of 1993, the great Mississippi flood of 1993. And that flood topped out at just over 1 million cubic feet per second. However, it was actually, you know, because of it's a, it's a very low gradient, uh, they're from the headwaters of the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. So the water moves relatively sluggish. Um, the gradients out that we're looking at in Washington and Montana and, and the, um, uh, the Scabland areas are fairly steep. So the water can get moving really fast, uh, up to 50, 60, and some estimates even 70 miles an hour. Now, bear in mind that in some cases we're talking about water moving 50, 60 miles an hour, that's 500 or 1,000 feet deep. So you can imagine that when a, a, a flow of water like that sweeps over the land, there's nothing left in its pathway after the flood has ceased. There's nothing. Because in some, places, in some places, this water has cut, literally quarried, excavated 1,000 feet of bedrock. So imagine you're standing on the land pre-flood, then you come back, to to that same spot after the flood is over and where you had been standing before is now going to be a thousand feet up in the air because the flood has excavated uh, a channel that deep. It's hard to imagine, but these things really did happen. Yeah, it is hard to imagine. Huh? So, and, and this was caused by, are you saying it was caused by a meteor or a, uh, in, in tandem with something else? Like how did it happen so fast? Well, there's the mystery with a capital M. And by default, there are, no, there are not a lot of triggers for these kind of events short of something extraterrestrial. By that, I mean an asteroid or a comet. At this point, I think most of the evidence is pointing in the direction of a, fragment, a large fragmenting comet. In fact, it's... Here's the scenario that at this point seems to fit the greatest amount of evidence with with some inconsistencies, because at this point, we really don't know for sure really what happened. But the evidence is emerging 
more and more that, yes, it was something cosmic. I mean, there are, there are what I call fingerprints and footprints. Footprints are the obvious things you can see in the landscape, like I just talked about. If yeah. you had a 500 or 1,000-foot deep channel, that's a footprint. You can see it. Yeah. It's very clear. Fingerprints, you don't see them, but they still provide very important evidence. Some of the fingerprints that have been emerging, like in the last 10 years, is the signatures of an extraterrestrial event. Now, what does that mean? That means perhaps an iridium spike, uh, you know, platinum group metals, osmium perhaps. These are things, this, these are uh, metals that are delivered to Earth via asteroids and comets and meteors, nanodiamonds, uh, uh, material that would be shocked material, um, microspherals that would probably be the result of a vaporizing event. Again, that could happen in the wake of, of some kind of a cosmic impact. So the fingerprints are emerging that suggests, yes, there was something cosmic involved for sure. And I think that the most likely scenario is, is that somewhere, going back in that reference to the what I said, the late Wisconsin, <clears throat> going back to about 26,000 years ago, this is what this is a scenario that seems to be emerging that's most consistent with the greatest amount of evidence. About 26,000 years ago, an extremely large comet comes in, most likely translated into the inner solar system from the Kuiper disk outside of Neptune, gets captured into a, a Jovian orbit, which means it's being uh, handed off back and forth between the Sun and Jupiter. And during this time, it begins to undergo a hierarchy of disintegrations, meaning that the one giant comet nucleus breaks up and spawns multiple offspring that are smaller cometary nuclei. Very much, if you guys remember, like what happened uh, in 1994 with Shoemaker-Levy 9, remember? Yeah, yeah. Right, because what we saw there was a comet, a large comet nucleus passed within the Roche limit of Jupiter, within the, the, the gravitational field of Jupiter, where the gravity field was strong enough to literally rip it apart. The one nucleus became 21 nuclei. Those 21 nuclei then uh, orbited around the sun in a, in a long train, and on, in the second week of July 1994, those 21 objects successively fell into Jupiter, impacted Jupiter. Now, I think something very similar to that seems to be the most likely explanation for what happened at the end of the last ice age. And in fact, I'm inclined now to lean towards uh, a what I would call a bombardment episode where you might have had this large object breaks up, comes in, like I said, about 26,000 years ago, begins to break up. Now, part of one consequence of that breaking up is that it strews an immense amount of cosmic dust into its stream. Um, as it breaks up, the, 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 the material of that stream can range from mountain-sized boulders down to fine dust and everything in between. So if the Earth encounters that fine dust, what it does is it increases the opacity of the atmosphere, which reflects a lot of sun back out. So a lot of heat is lost to space, and that could be part of the reason why around 26,000 years ago, the planet, after it had been warming, suddenly went back to frigid glacial, glacial cold. And over the next five, six, seven thousand 7,000 years, the planet just got colder and colder and colder until about 18,000 years ago, it was just extremely cold. I mean, um, like where I live uh, in Georgia, uh, which is a pretty balmy climate now. It had 
a climate similar to what you would find up where you guys live. Okay, um, a lot of the mid latitudes of the United States were actually tundra during that period of time. Now, about fifteen thousand years ago, this the, the the grip of the bitter cold began to alleviate, and the planet began to warm gradually, um, as you know, gradualist scholars like to picture it. And then, uh, around fourteen and a half thousand years ago that gradual warming was suddenly interrupted by an enormous spike of thermal energy introduced into the terrestrial system. That enormous spike of energy caused a massive melting of the ice sheet, a rapid sea level rise that is now referred to as meltwater pulse 1A, where the sea level rose many meters over a very short period of time. Um, <clears throat> and then over the next thousand years or so, the climate began to just seesaw back and forth from cold to warm to cold to warm. Um, and then around 13,000 years ago, it plunged very rapidly back into the same level of bitter cold that it had been at at 18,000 years ago. Hmm. And this lasted for a thousand years. And it was during this thousand year interval of bitter glacial cold that interrupted the gradual warming when all of the great megafauna disappeared from the planet, the, the woolly mammoths and the saber-toothed cats, the giant ground sloths and the giant beavers and the camels that inhabited North America, on and on. 120 roughly species of large mega mammal disappeared during this interval of thousand-year cold, which is called the Younger Dryas, named after a polar wildflower, Dryas octopetala, which only grows in the tundra. So it had disappeared for a couple of thousand years in Northern Europe during this gradual warming phase. Then when, when the cold spike came back suddenly, that was followed by a return of Dryas octopetala for, you know, another 1,200 years. And so that interval of cold has been called the younger Dryas. To contrast it with the older Dryas, which was a spike of glacial cold that occurred when I was talking about <clears throat> where the climate was zigzagging. <clears throat> so <clears throat> at around 13,000 years ago is now when this interesting fingerprints are showing up where uh, geochemists and geologists uh, led by Alan West and Richard Firestone and James Kennett and others have been looking since the year 2007 and discovering uh, abundant evidence of nanodiamonds and magnetic grains and microspherals and, and platinum group metals and all the things that you would associate with some kind of an extraterrestrial account encounter are showing up at a horizon that's being dated right at 12,900 years ago. So now we have this cold episode called the Younger Dryas that lasted from about 12,900 to about 11,600 years ago. And 11,600 years ago, there's another massive warming spike, another rapid melting and rise of sea level. This has been called meltwater pulse 1B. And so this seems to bracket this whole transition out of the Ice Age. And after this 11,600-year event, um, the climate uh, began to finally stabilize, so that about 10,000 years ago, the climate had become pretty stable. Now, bear in mind that the, that the sea level rise, which was 400 feet lower than now 
during the Ice Age, which is pretty significant if people stop to think about what that means in terms of where your beaches are and where your coastlines are at and what that does to shallow marine ecologies and coral reefs and so on. You drop sea level 400 feet during the, 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 the depth of the Ice Age. Now, that sea level has been rising for 5,000 years, but it's not rising uniformly. It's rising in these pulses where there are these huge pulses of meltwater that go into sea level, rises rapidly, stops for a while, like during that younger, driest cold period, the, uh, the sea level actually perhaps dropped again. But now by about 9,000 years ago, what we find is sea levels are getting pretty close to their modern levels. And at that point is when we see the first seeds being planted of civilization, settled communities, farming communities, when we see the first cities, um, Chatelhoyuk and Jericho and others begin to emerge, um, we begin to see the dispersion of languages. We begin to see the, we see the domestication of animals. Um, again, uh, settled uh, a sedentary lifestyle as opposed to a nomadic lifestyle. So we see these major changes occurring around 9,000 years ago. And what I'm, I think what the new paradigm is suggesting is that what we're seeing there is essentially the rebooting of human civilization mm -hmm. in the aftermath of this whole succession of catastrophic events concentrated into this 3,000-year period that jerked the planet out of the Ice Age and sent us into this nice interglacial warmth that we've been enjoying for the last nine or 10,000 years. thing that people have to realize, though, is that what we now know from the record of climate change in the past is that we can see that in the last 250 or 300,000 years, there have been a, a series of oscillations. The climate swings between the depths of an ice age, comes out of it, goes into this interglacial warmth such as we're in now, sea levels come up then, the ice age comes back, sea levels go down. And this oscillation has been going on for now about 2.6 million years maybe as many as 30 or 40 times that the planet has now shifted back and forth. <clears throat> Nobody knows for sure because each time you have one of these cataclysmic transitions, it basically erases the evidence of former transitions. But here's one important point of all this, is that it now appears that periods of the interglacial warmth, such as we're now enjoying, are actually the exception within the last couple of million years. And We've now been in a period of interglacial warmth that's lasted four, nine, or 10,000 years. From what we see, looking back at the record, going back hundreds of thousands of years, is there has been no period of interglacial warmth longer than the one we're in now. Mm. Most of them are shorter. Mm. People need to factor that into their thinking when they start talking about climate change. Yeah. Because there, there's a whole lot here about climate change that's being ignored by the official versions, the Al Gorean version <laughs> of climate change. So at that rate, I suppose we're due for, uh, for a cool down at any time. Uh, how serious of a, a degree do you suppose that would be? Well, if it was anything like past changes, what it means is that, you know, what we see is that the ice ages apparently come on in a few centuries or less. And some of the changes, you know, there, there's going to be a lag between whatever triggers it and by the time all the changes have, have gone into a, effect. So 
you know, what we've seen, a number of, of geologists that have looked at this, um, some of these last periods, have actually coined a term instantaneous glaciarization to describe that the, that, the, that the transition into the glacial cold seems to sometimes happen so fast that in a geological sense, it's, it's the snap of the fingers. Right. Um, maybe a couple of hundred years, maybe even a few decades. You know, maybe the trigger could be as short as a year or two. We certainly see that coming out of the last ice age is that some of the transitions, rapid transitions, may have occurred in a matter of only a couple of years. And, w- and what triggered those again? What triggered the, the big melt then again? <clears throat> well, again, I think that, that by default, we have to look at something extraterrestrial because for 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, now <clears throat> scientists have been trying to explain what takes us out of an ice age. And with with no agreement whatsoever. If there's a hundred different scientists proposing a hundred different theories, right? But for the most part, most of those theories are going to be terrestrial, with the exception of changes in solar radiation due to an effect called the Mount Milankovitch uh, effect, which is that the fact that the Earth's geometry relative to the sun is constantly going through a series of gradual changes. The, t- the tilt of the Earth on its axis swings back and forth a couple of degrees. The distance of perihelion shifts uh, relative to the seasonal cycle. Um, <clears throat> the obliquity of the ecliptic shifts. All of these things, these three factors, actually could cause the amount of solar radiation reaching the surface of the Earth to, to vary by as much as 10%. So <clears throat> most of the early ideas of glacial a you know glacial inception and so forth were based upon these Milankovitch uh, processes, which of course are very slow and undoubtedly play a role. Absolutely. I'm not saying they don't play a role. They do. But superimposed on top of these slow changes are these drastic, catastrophic, sudden, rapid events that cannot be explained by slow, subtle changes in the geometry of the Earth-Sun relation. So I think by default, we have to look at something a little more extreme, such as impacts of things from space, because that can certainly do it. If you had, if you had an, a multiple impact of it, and some of these impacts were into the ocean. See, part of the problem with the onset of an ice age is this, is that you have a, an extremely rapid buildup of glacial ice, right? Okay, so now you've got this rapid buildup of glacial ice, which means it has to be snowing a whole lot, Right. But it has to be so cold that that snow isn't melting. Like right now, up where you guys are, it snows, right? Is, is it snowed yet this year? Oh, yeah. 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 And okay. it's melted a few times, too. So. And it's melted a few times. It'll come back. And then usually when is the spring thaw up there, about late April? Uh, I'm, I'm too new. Yeah, usually yeah. it'll thaw like in the middle of – start to thaw in the middle of March. It'll be nice yeah. for a few weeks and it'll – fucking blizzard and will be winter for another three weeks and calgary is like a rare example for weather right but it does go away the snow melts away and um you know you're 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 back to you know green grass growing and trees with their leaves coming back for a while yeah um, but now imagine this imagine that winter comes but then spring doesn't come for fifteen thousand years <laughs> I mean, that's literally what we're talking about. And I'm moving to Georgia. Yeah. Well, 
Well, <laughs> you might want to move a little further south than that, actually. But, but my point is that's basically what we're talking about. It's, it's like if spring didn't come and it just stayed winter, snow kept falling and it didn't melt, pretty soon it piles up, the pressure compresses it into what's called fern, F-I-R-N, then that gets compressed into glacial ice. And after five or six or 7,000 years, you've got two miles of ice, right? Okay, so now the thing is, is, is it may take several thousand years to get that two miles of ice. But the, ch the transition that causes the climate to shift so that spring doesn't show up, that might happen in a virtual instant. See, and, and many of the geologists that have looked at this realize that the transition occurred so fast that they refer to it as instantaneous glacierization. Um, so it appears that it's not something that comes on gradual over many tens of thousands of years, like scientists imagined 50, 60, 70 years ago. It's now apparent that it comes on really, really quick when it does. Now, <clears throat> getting back to the problem with the inception of an ice age is this. You've got all of this snowfall with this rapid buildup of glacial ice, right? In order to get that snowfall, you have to evaporate water from the oceans. But the water to be evaporated in the amounts that you see in this accelerated snowfall and glacier and ice accumulation means that the hydrological cycle has been intensified, which is, and what, how do you intensify the hydrological cycle? With heat. So. This has been the conundrum that, 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 or the paradox of ice ages that's been very difficult to explain. On the one hand, you've got this rapid ice buildup, this rapid accumulation. But on the other hand, in order to loft this moisture into the air that can precipitate out a snowfall requires heat. So you see, this is a major contradiction. How do you resolve that contradiction? Well, I think perhaps, again, we have to turn to extraterrestrial forces. If you have a fragmenting comet nucleus coming into the Earth's atmosphere. Some of these pieces hit the oceans. They're going to loft many, many times their volume of water into the atmosphere. And this water lofted into the atmosphere is going to spread out. It's probably going to go up to the stratosphere. It's going to take weeks for it to rain out. Now, at the same time, you notice, see, if, if you have a, an oceanic impact, that produces one set of effects, right? It creates tsunamis. It lofts huge amounts of water vapor into the atmosphere. If you have an impact on land, uh, it throws huge amounts of dust into the atmosphere. It can trigger extreme uh, events, uh, wildfire events that can put smoke and soot and particulate matter into the atmosphere. If it's an atmospheric burst along the lines of the Tunguska event of 1908, it can, uh, it can increase the amount of extraterrestrial dust that's in the atmosphere. Because what happened in that 1908 event in, in Tunguska was you didn't have an impact into the ground. That's important for people to realize. It exploded in the atmosphere five miles up. Mm -hmm. That's eight kilometers. When it did that, that debris that comprised that object was obliterated and, and essentially dispersed into the atmosphere. Some of that was carried all the way to Europe for about the next week for several uh, three or four or five nights in a row. 
because of that particulate matter in the atmosphere, it caused the whole atmosphere to become luminous. Um, so light, in fact, that in the year 1908, people out in the countryside could read newspapers. So what we have here is that we're really just beginning to sort out the terrestrial consequences of cosmic encounters. But it seems to me that within that mix of events is the formula that could lead to the onset of an ice age. Hmm. Because on the one hand, you could put particulate matter, soot, smoke into the atmosphere, if it's, especially if it's a multiple impact event, which could uh, cause the atmosphere to cool. But at the same time, you've lofted enormous amounts of water vapor into the stratosphere. Rainout requires, you know, every time every raindrop has a little nucleus of particulate matter. I mean, that's, you know, cloud seeding, how that works. They, they dump a bunch of, uh, I think, silver chloride or something into the atmosphere to provide nucleus for the water vapor to condense around and form a raindrop. Mm. That exact process or similar type of process could happen in the event of a cosmic encounter. It, it can, one, it can put the moisture into the atmosphere that would then rain out it could also cause a simultaneous cooling. And I, as far as all of the uh, explanations that I've looked at, dozens and dozens and dozens over the years for the onset of an ice age, it seems to me that some scenario such as I just described in the end is going to be what does it. Huh. What about volcanic uh, eruptions? Is that How do the, some oh, yeah. of those bigger ones play into that? Absolutely. Volcanic eruptions could be very similar in their effects. However... The thing about volcanic eruptions is they generally will not be as energetic. If we go back to the, was it Tambora and 72,000 years ago, that was apparently enough to bring on an ice age. Right. It, it does. But that was, a, that was, what, 500 cubic miles of matter ejected into the atmosphere? Some phenomenal amount. Um, you know, way beyond Krakatoa or Tobo. Toba yeah. or St. Helens, you know, um, what was it, uh, Toba? No, let's see, Toba or Tambora, I always get them mixed up. Yeah. Toba was the one uh, in 1817, 18, 18, 18, right in there. Um, maybe it was 1815. Uh, yeah, it, it, when it erupted, it put so much particulate matter in the atmosphere that basically the next couple of years there was almost no summer in Europe. <laughs> and in fact, that was helped, I think, to bring on the last phase of the Little Ice Age that only ended in the mid 19th century. Huh. I got a, I got so, a speculative. Okay, go ahead. Finish off your thought there. No, that's it. You take it for a minute. I'm going to have a drink of water. Well, I have a speculative thing. I mean, we keep coming back to this, uh, this I'm speculating. Ice Age and. <laughs> Um, what are the chances, like, if you were to speculate a little bit, what are the chances that we might find eventually uh, signs of an advanced civilization from before the Ice Age? Because obviously, like you said, it was a reboot, right? We kind of rebooted, and we survived through that whole thing, but there was areas of the Earth that were somewhat livable, you know, through that. And, and before that, obviously, we don't know, really, did we flourish at some point? Like, do you think that we will find some specific evidence to point in that direction eventually? Well, I think we already are. I think, you know, what I mentioned earlier, go back to Tepe and Gunang Padang. So, so uh, that may go back before then, then? Yes, it could. 
Yeah, I mean, the preliminary dating is suggesting a minimum age of 12,000 years. And in the case of Gobekli Tepe, the excavations of that whole complex have just begun. It's been buried. And uh, initially I thought, well, maybe it had been buried during some type of a natural event, but Graham seems pretty convinced that it was that it was a deliberate burial. And thinking about that, it occurred to me that maybe one reason that it might have been buried was to protect it. Yeah. Um, you know, um, if in what I was describing, a, a, a multiple impact event where some of the stuff is, is smaller, lower density stuff, you know, like the size, say, of the Tunguska object of, of 1908, which is estimated to be about 150 feet in diameter. Okay. It, it was fairly low density. It was a small object, but it was moving really, really fast. So when it came into, <clears throat> came into the atmosphere, it basically blew up at, at five miles up. Now, it blew up with the force of a large hydrogen bomb. Now, if you look at any of the major metropolitan areas around North America, whether it's Atlanta or Washington, D.C., or up in Canada, Montreal, you know, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Denver, any of these areas, what you see is they all have roughly the same urban area. Um, within their perimeter highway. In Atlanta, we, it's 285 is the perimeter highway. And I think it's uh, 35 miles from the north to south, roughly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Within that perimeter highway, there's roughly about 800 square miles of surface area. The amount of forest utterly devastated and wiped out when the Tunguska object exploded in the atmosphere was between eight and 900 miles. Yeah. So essentially what you're saying is that that one little object coming in at a high rate of speed, if it came over a, a major metropolitan area would essentially be enough to just utterly destroy that metropolitan area, causing millions of casualties. Um, <clears throat> now, if we're possibly talking about an event or multiple events where not just one object like that is coming into the atmosphere, but a swarm of objects, maybe dozens or hundreds of objects like that. Mm. And, and there's nothing implausible about that. Uh, it all depends on where the Earth is relative to that orbital, uh, the, the orbit of the object that's undergoing the disintegration. If it's, you know, a comet, again, We've seen with Shoemaker-Levy 9 that one large comet can produce multiple offspring. There can actually be a second and third generations where those offspring break up. Every meteor shower that, that we observe, um, the Geminids being the, the current one, um, the Leonids, the Taurids, um, the Orionids, etc., the Draconids, every single one of them is associated with the breakup of a comet. And what we're seeing in a meteor stream is the one of the final stages in the life cycle of a comet. Now, if if the people listening to this are interested in getting into some of this in more detail and how some of this relates to some of the myths and traditions uh, that we've inherited from, from many, many generations ago, there's a series on our website um, about the symbolism of the Holy Grail and how it ties in with uh with with cosmic phenomena like we're talking about because it certainly does and if anybody who's actually immersed themselves into the literature of the grail they would know that it 
it's constantly invoking cosmic imagery. And so much of the ancient mythology does. It invokes cosmic imagery. And we know from all over the ancient world, regardless of the diversity of these ancient cultures, all over the ancient world, they all had one thing in common that we're now aware of, and that is that they were obsessed with watching the sky. <laughs> they, right? They yeah, were, they were all the Solarian uh, mythology. Yes. Why were they so obsessed with watching the sky? Well, I'm sure it had spiritual and religious reasons, but very pragmatic reasons as well. Is because it's very likely the scenario that's now emerging is that for periods of time in the history of the human species on this planet, which goes back 150 to 250,000 years of modern humans occupying this planet, minimum 150 to 180,000 years, skeletal remains of modern humans. So if we say 180,000 years of human modern humans occupying this planet, there have been times within that span of time where the cosmos in which the earth is immersed has been orders of magnitude more active than we've seen in recent times. Mm. And one, our ancestors, ancient peoples on this planet, all over the world would have witnessed things, perhaps comet showers, when there were multiple comets in this, great comets in the sky at one time, um, when the heavens came alive with fire, uh, when, when these things broke up and the earth encountered the debris streams left in the wake of these uh, of these. Uh, fragmenting cometary nuclei. Um, so once you begin to recognize that from the astronomical perspective, this is absolutely not unrealistic at all. Then we begin to go back and revisit the myths and stories, the legends, the epic tales, the battle of Zeus and Typhon, for example, that happened in the sky and all of the consequences, you know, uh, Typhon hurling fire and brimstone at Zeus and Zeus hurling his thunderbolts back at Typhon. We can now begin to look at that in a whole different light. When we, we just, the myth of Phaeton, um, who tried to drive the chariot of the sun, his father, uh, Helios, and he got into the chariot and the, the great steeds ran away with the chariot. He couldn't control them and it left the, the plane of the ecliptic and uh, descended down to earth and set the earth on fire. And finally, the earth was saved because Jupiter hurled a thunderbolt, which smashed Phaeton and his chariot from the sky, and it fell to earth and into the river Eridanus. And then the, uh, the Heliades, who were his sisters, all wept over his death, and it caused a great flood. Their weeping caused a great flood. So when we begin to look at these myths, and there are hundreds of them like this, we are now in a position where we can reevaluate and go, okay, now these myths are not the ravings of some pre-scientific, barbaric, ignorant minds. These myths are encoded stories about real events that were experienced directly by our ancestors on this planet. And once we realize that, we make that phase shift in our thinking, it's going to open up a whole new complex of realities to us, that, that this is actually encoded scientific information that's come down to us in the form of these stories and tales and myths and so on. Hmm. So do we know that there's some areas like Gobekli Tepe and, 
and Easter Island, for example, that that were like, what were those areas like in during the Ice Age? Were they covered fully? Like, I mean, it's still shocking when you think of where I live right now that it was two miles of ice not that long ago. Like, really, in a cosmic scale, it's like you know, a few thousand years ago, we were covered in ice. So, what about some of those other areas then? Well, yeah, there were areas that you know, an ecologist would refer to as a refuge, a refugium, yeah. places, sanctuaries where. Yeah, like East Central Africa seems to have been a place where life thrived quite prolifically. And in the aftermath of these uh, great catastrophes that wiped out the megafauna all over the rest of the planet, what we would call the Pleistocene megafauna, the Pleistocene being this period that, as I mentioned, started about 2.6 million years ago and only ended 10,000 years ago with these catastrophic events. North America had this incredible fauna of, you know, there were three or four species of proboscidean in North America. Those are elephants, basically. You know, you had woolly mammoths, Colombian mammoths, uh, mammothus imperator, you had mastodons, you know, there were giant camels in North America. There were rhinoceros in North America. I mean, on and on and on, right? Well, these were the Pleistocene megafauna, right? In North America, three quarters or 80% at least, of the Pleistocene megafauna did not survive the transition. In South America, roughly the same percentages succumbed to these tremendous cataclysmic changes. In Eurasia, we see a third, not quite a half in some places of the great megafauna went extinct completely, erased from the planet. In Africa, only about 10% of the Pleistocene megafauna went extinct. So what happened is, 85 to 90% of the Pleistocene megafauna in Africa survive. Hmm. That's why Africa has some, has the greatest megafauna bestiary on earth today. Oh. What does that, what does that tell us? It tells us that, you know, because the extinction is almost certainly a, a consequence of habitat destruction. It tells us that the, the habitat destruction in Africa, at least in the mid Uh, in the equatorial regions was probably minimal. And I have suspected that perhaps the great rift zone area, Kenya, Tanzania, was actually a place of refuge during the ice age and during the, um, the cataclysm that terminated. And, and what you would have then had is a repopulation, a spreading out from those sanctuaries of life going into the depopulated and destroyed habitats as they're coming back to life. On this trip with Graham, uh, Graham did not accompany me to this because this was out, I was out there a couple of days before he arrived. But I went up and I visited Mount St. Helens, mm-hmm. which you know was um, about 300 square miles that was utterly destroyed, completely wiped out back in 1980. Yeah, I remember seeing the ash. Uh, I lived uh, in uh, just west east of uh, vancouver when that happened so oh, it was the ash yeah oh yeah we had ash yeah, yeah. i wasn't yeah. born it was yet. weird it was weird what really i wasn't born yet oh my god you're so young yeah well <laughs> in spite of the fact that you weren't born it did happen i don't know i don't know <laughs> you weren't there to witness it it did happen and and it so i i went and spent the day there and about 300, roughly about 300 square miles of the area just to the north of the mountain was just utterly obliterated, turned into a barren moonscape. 
Now here we are 34 years later, roughly, mm. and life is coming back big time. You thriving. Can, course, yes, thriving. Forests are growing. Um, another century or two, you know, the mountain will be looking beautiful again. The forest will have grown up. Um, so it doesn't really, it does, in the aftermath of a cataclysm, it doesn't take nature that long to reclaim. That's, that's one of the remarkable things. Um, but I, I think what, what we need to be aware of here is that what we're talking about 11, 12, 13,000 years ago is a global catastrophe that left huge areas of the planet depopulated, habitats, large-scale habitats destroyed. Now, th think of this. You know, I, I try to come up with ways of putting this, these things into perspective for people, but right now there's roughly, it depends on how you count the species, but 120 to 130 species of megafauna inhabiting the earth today. And that's on all continents. If you made a list, you know, lions and tigers and bears and hyenas, <laughs> moose, elk, wolves, go down the list, you're going to come up with about 120 species of megafauna. Megafauna <clears throat> is defined as an animal that weighs over 100 pounds in body weight. Okay. So by implication, I'm assuming both of you guys are megafauna. I'm double. I'm double, a megafauna. Double megafauna. I'm double yeah. megafauna. <laughs> I'm about a... No, no, I'm not a, I'm not a triple megafauna. Yet. Uh, but yeah, so we can include humans in that definition, megafauna. Okay, so in the world today, there's about 120, say, 130 species of megafauna. At the end of the last ice age, about 120 species of megafauna went extinct. So think about that. The population of megafauna on Earth was halved as a result of these catastrophes. If you were going to perpetuate an equivalent catastrophe today, that destroyed as many species of megafauna as were destroyed 12,000 years ago, you'd basically have to eliminate every single animal over 100 pounds body weight on Earth. Now think about that. That's a pretty damn extreme event that can wipe out half the megafauna on Earth. Now, what about the remaining megafauna? Did they come through completely unscathed? Highly, highly unlikely. And in fact, I, again, I use this, uh, the, 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 um, the example of the modern American bison. You know that there were, coming into the early 19th century, there were millions of, of bison roaming, freely roaming North America, right? Yeah. At the turn of the century, what was it, 50, 100 of them? And now you can go into your local supermarket and buy bison bird, right? Of course, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're constraining the number of bison. But if they had a, a completely open range, un, uh, an unfettered habitat, um, they could have easily rebounded to a couple of million by now. Mm -hmm. Now, if we're looking at 10,000 years back in the future, okay, we could very easily miss the fact that the species of American bison came within a fraction of an inch of becoming extinct, right? Right. I think the same thing applies to human beings as well. Uh, I think we came, not only other megafauna would have come close to the brink of extinctions, but so did humans. And there's actually emerging evidence now that we human species did come close to extinction. And we can see that because there was a culture called the Clovis. Yeah. 
that appeared suddenly in the, in the wake of that early phase of glacial warming that I was talking about. They show up on the American landscape, perhaps even on the European landscape. They last about 300 years, and then, boom, they're gone. At 12,900 years, they disappear. It's as if the curtain comes down suddenly on the stage, and boom, they're gone. The Clovis are gone. Now, we've got four, 500 to 1,000-year hiatus where the evidence of the Clovis culture is absent from the archaeological record, and then we see the emergence of what's called the Folsom culture, which is has a distinct toolkit, different life ways, easy to distinguish the Folsom from the Clovis. <laughs> now, in terms of the Clovis, they were actively quarrying, uh, there, were active, there were active rock quarries that were being utilized for several hundred years by the Clovis people. At 12,900 years, those rock quarries are suddenly abandoned. There are campsites and apparent, like, settled communities where there's abundant radiocarbon ev dating evidence of human occupation, and then suddenly that radiocarbon dating is gone. There are, they had a very distinctive toolkit. They used uh, rock like chert and obsidian and other very hard but fragile rock to create these really beautiful spear points, uh, fluted spear points that were very distinctively Clovis. When you, once you've looked at a few Clovis spear points, they're, they're very easy to recognize. So for 300 years, there are abundant Clovis spear points and toolkits uh, found in the archaeological record at 12,900 years. There goes. What happened to the Clovis culture? Well, I think that what happened was this: they were teetering on the brink of extinction. And mm. so for hundreds of years, human beings were very possibly uh, struggling for the, the survival of the species. And we have to understand this because I think many of the um, moral proscriptions that have come down to us from ages of gone have their roots in the fact that, you know, human beings did hover for a short period of time on the brink of extinction. And, you know, we can turn to the religious and spiritual traditions of, of the planet, and we discover all kinds of indications and pointers suggesting that thing, same thing, our own biblical, biblical account. What happens? It opens with this, the story of Adam and Eve, right, which I, th I look at as being metaphorical. But at the same time, what's interesting is that when, when Yahweh gives them their, their, their uh, task, their marching orders, and says, here's your, here's your mandate on earth, what are you supposed to do? Be fruitful and multiply is the first thing he tells them to do, right? We should got carried away with that one. Yeah, we did. Now, okay, be fruitful and multiply. Well, if, if you're hovering on the brink of extinction, a species hovering on the brink of extinction, then that probably is a critically important thing to do. You know, when, when the American bison reached 50 in total numbers, the most important thing was to establish viable breeding populations, right? So if we look at it that way, but then what, what follows after that? Be fruitful and multiply. Get this, replenish the earth.
Because you think if that yes. happened today, there'd be nothing left, right? Like when they found whatever whatever bits and scraps of us survived, which would probably be, you know, the tribes in the Amazon and maybe the Australian Aborigines and places like that are going to be the people that pull through. And we just kind of go to the wayside, like planes, trains, automobiles would all become things of folklore. Gone. Yes, would become things of folklore. And, and the thing is, is that, yes, you're, you're right. You're right. People that knew how to survive basically off the land and survive with primitive skills could, for the most part, in, unless they were in, you know, Unless they were right in one of the epicenters of destruction, of course, then, then everybody goes down. But but if, if they're in the outlying areas, in the safe places, which there were safe places, yeah, they, they could continue on. It is what you can see, but look at our look at our global infrastructure now and how integrated it is. You know, if we have a Hurricane Katrina that comes along and wipes out New Orleans, well, we can rebuild New Orleans because the infrastructure is still intact around it. But I like to think in terms of thresholds and orders of magnitude. Let's say we had a, a, a Katrina-level event, not necessarily a hurricane, just in terms of destruction and energy release. Let's say you had a, 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 a Katrina-level event times 10, and you had instead of one major city being dramatically affected, you had 10. We could recover from that, and it would probably take a generation mm -hmm. to recover. What happens if you had two orders of magnitude? A hundred major cities. Now you would see that our recovery capabilities are going to be severely tested. Three orders of magnitude. Hey, we're back in the Stone Age, people. We're back in the Stone Age. And the kinds of events that we're talking about here, extraterrestrial impacts, they're the granddaddy of all natural catastrophes. Um, they can do, they can cause hurricanes on levels unimaginable. They can cause global Cooling by putting huge amounts of particulate matter into the atmosphere. They can cause global warming by injecting huge amounts of water vapor, which is actually the most effective greenhouse gas, into the atmosphere. They can cause earthquakes on a, on a level way beyond anything we've seen in modern times. They can cause enormous biomass destruction through burning. They can cause tsunamis that are would be hundreds of feet high. See, it's like... Every conceivable natural catastrophe gets rolled into one in a cosmic impact. And what we're learning now is two things, two things that people need to integrate into their thinking. One is that as astronomers have looked out into space, that our neighborhood, our, our extraterrestrial neighborhood, what we're realizing is that it is densely populated with <laughs> things. It's not just this empty, empty space. No, we're sharing near-Earth space with all kinds of stuff, right? Now, the other thing is, now this is astronomers looking at the sky. Geologists looking at the Earth have discovered that there are hundreds of scars left over from the encounters between Earth and this cosmic debris. And those hundreds are surely only a small percentage of the total. I would suggest anybody who questions this, to take a pair of high-powered binoculars, go out on the night of the full moon and take a good look at the moon. Yeah. And what are you going to see? You're going to see uh, our nearest celestial neighbor is pockmarked with millions of scars from cosmic impacts. Then think about the fact that our planet, because of its greater cross-sectional area and greater mass 
is going to be roughly 80 times more susceptible to impacts than is the moon. But we have right? a protective atmosphere, though. We have a protective atmosphere that will protect us from things that are, say, 10 to 50 feet in diameter. Yes. <laughs> Look at what happened in Chelyabinsk, February of 2013. A 50-foot in diameter object blew up over that town. Nobody was killed, but 1,500 people were injured. And a thousand buildings were damaged. Now and that was school they, bus or something, right? No, 50, yeah, fifty feet. And and uh, and you were saying uh, the other one in Russia there, one hundred one fifty. Yeah, wow. Yeah. 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 Now, yes, the atmosphere did protect the surface of the Earth. In the case of Tunguska, yeah, the thing did not reach the surface of the Earth. But actually, a detonation in the atmosphere if it's low down enough, can be more devastating than, a, than an impact into the ground. This is why when, when the United States dropped the atomic bombs on Japan, people in the crude conception of it might think this bomb falling, it hits the earth and blows up when it hits the earth. No. What they did was they detonated those bombs in the atmosphere because the, the destruction of an atmospheric detonation is going to be greater than if it actually hits the ground and a lot of that energy is absorbed by the ground. So, yeah, the atmosphere will provide us protection against the smaller stuff. But once you hit 100 feet in diameter, no, the atmosphere isn't going to do much anymore. Um, 150, 200, 300, 400 feet in diameter, what you're going to be talking about is uh, extreme, extreme devastation in the area where the object penetrates the atmosphere. Now, another factor that you have to bear in mind is that density and composition of the object coming in plays a role, too. Right, right. If you, most people, I think, that are somewhat scientifically literate have seen pictures of the Behringer Crater or Meteor Crater in Arizona. Oh, yeah, it's, I want to go to that. That's a, is that the mile-wide one? or It's, it's about, about 4,000 feet wide and 650 feet deep. Okay. Okay. Now... That's an, that's an example of where an object actually struck the ground and created the classical all-shaped crater. Right. Right. The Tunguska object didn't strike the ground. So it did not create a crater in the classical sense. Okay. What's interesting, though, is that the object of Tunguska was about the same size as the object that created Meteor Crater in Arizona. The difference being one of composition and density. Right. The Tunguska object was a lower density. If you imagine this, you go out, you pick up a, a typical rock at, next to a stream, typical sedimentary rock, you know, sandstone or whatever. You pick it up, limestone. It's going to weigh three and a half grams per cubic centimeter, maybe, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, depending. Right. Now, imagine that you pick up, in the other hand, the same volume of cast iron. It's going to be much heavier, much denser, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. In the character and nature of these cosmic objects, you go all the way from low-density, almost snowball-like objects, which are comets, up to iron asteroids and everything in between. Now, a predominantly iron, high-density object is what hit Arizona. So because of that higher density, because it was a much harder object, it was able to penetrate fully through the atmosphere and strike the ground. The object in Siberia of 1908 was lower density, but roughly the same size, but it did not penetrate the atmosphere fully 
blew up and then devastated 800 and some square miles of old growth Taiga forest. So the consequences of the, 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 the surface consequences, the, the consequences down here below are going to be largely dependent not only on the size of the object, but the velocity that it's moving, its composition and density, and also the angle at which it comes into the atmosphere. Now, you know that if, if the object is coming behind the Earth, it's more like a rear-end collision, right? So you have to basically subtract the, vol the velocity of the Earth from the velocity of the incoming uh -huh. object, which uh -huh. might be 20 or 30 miles per second. It might make all the but, difference, yeah. Yes. On the other hand, if it's coming from the other direction and it's head-on collision, you have to add the two velocities. And now, because the, the energy release, the kinetic energy, is going to be the velocity squared, you can see what happens. So it, uh, sticking on that topic for a sec, there, people sell this jewelry, like tektites, they call them tektites, and Moldavite is supposedly this rare comet that landed in Czechoslovakia. So is that what you're talking about? It kind of ends up uh, being at a certain density where it ends up breaking up right before, and it could scatter uh, tektites all over the Earth? Or Yeah, tektites are interesting, but they're probably the result. Most tektites appear to be a mix of the cosmic material and terrestrial material. So in other words, if you have an object that comes in, strikes the Earth, there's so much heat release that it literally liquefies the Earth in that in the immediate area of the impact. It turns molten, and this molten material splashes out. And the molten material is comprised of both the terrestrial target rock and the composition of the object that came in. So that stuff gets mixed together in this boiling stuff that gets thrown up in the atmosphere. As it rains out, it forms these elegant aerodynamic shapes, teardrop shapes, cone shapes, dumbbell shapes, sphericals, etc. And that's what falls back to the earth as tectites. Ah, oh, interesting. Yeah, and so your Moldavites, yeah, they are the consequence of an impact. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's in Czechoslovakia. Hmm. But one of the many hundreds, actually thousands of times, Earth has been impacted by stuff from space. In fact, we are now getting to the point where it's becoming apparent that extraterrestrial phenomena like that is probably the dominant geological factor, the dominant biological factor. Um, you know, everything from plate tectonics, you know, to the uh, climate change and you know, the, the, the oscillation between glacial and interglacial ages, mass extinctions, volcanism, um, you know, the creation of, of magmatic hotspots like Yellowstone, all of this, you know, uh, uh, reversals of the geomagnetic field, the list goes on and on. Probably all of those things can be tied in to cosmic impact. So what do you think we should do then about that as a, as a society, as a culture? Should we just invest a bunch of money and, and really try and have some sort of defense system against that? If that's like the number one thing that's going to affect us. We've got to get to the moon, buddy. Makes yeah. you wonder why we don't have fucking moon bases. I mean, NASA must oh. know this shit too. You know why we well, don't have moon bases. Well, you know, you'd think they would. You would think they do, but, you know, and they do. You know, there are, there are, uh, Scientists and engineers within NASA that are very much keen on this, wanting to do something about it. But, you know, there's there's huge political inertia there. Um, 
You know, I mean, we're spending so much of our natural resources on other things, what I think of as the inessential things, that there's basically nothing left over. NASA's been basically starved for funds for decades now. You know, we, we started out, you know, with this vigorous uh, moon program, you know, space program in the 60s with Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. We created this tremendous fleet of, of, of Saturn rockets that was, you know, at, at the time, assuming that this is now the beginning of our, uh, our uh, you know, migration and colonization into the solar system. Well, basically, our space program of the 1960s was a um, casualty of the Vietnam War. When Nixon needed more money to fight the war in Vietnam, he, he gutted the space program. And all of these Saturn rockets that we had built at tremendous cost to the taxpaying public were put out to rust. And, you know, right now, you know, the government itself has become the big, one of the biggest obstacles to us actually responding in such a way. Because, you know, there's a whole burgeoning private sector space program underway. And, um, you know, again, they're trying to do it on a shoestring. But what's interesting is that the government has created tremendous regulatory roadblocks. Um, had... Similar roadblocks been in place back in the early 20th century. There would have never been an aviation industry that got off the ground. Um, but, yeah, clearly what we need to do is, and, and I think what it's going to take is, is a couple more Chelyabinsks, or it's going to take it's going to take an object actually killing a couple of thousand or 10,000 or 100,000 people right. before people finally go, oh, wait a second. You know, it, it's going to take that to get people out of their trains. And then what would you do then? What would you suggest we do? I would suggest that we basically pull out the stops and move forward, which basically means we become in the next generation or two a cosmic civilization. I heard um, one of you guys mentioned, you know, going back to the moon. Well, I think it would be very sensible to begin to colonize the moon. You know, going back resurrecting some of the ideas of Gerard O'Neill and his uh, graduate students at Princeton back in the mid-70s, where they began to explore the possibilities of resource development from space. You know, I mean, some of the things, you know, like down here on Earth, we've been trying to get uh, viable solar energy in place for decades. And, you know, I think we're constantly making strides in that direction, but we're still beset by a series of problems, which is that you know, the day-night cycle, clouds, you know, the weather, um, you know, the fact that, that solar collectors do take up a whole lot of uh, real estate. But if we go five to 10,000 miles outside of the Earth's atmosphere um, and set up a solar collector, you're, that solar collector is going to be able to collect solar energy unbroken, unmitigated, 24 hours a day. Roughly at this intensity, about 10 times what you would get if you set that same solar collector in the middle of Death Valley on a clear day at noon in the middle of the summer. Mm. See, it's, it's once we begin to use, put, transplant our industry into space, we will be able to viably run factories with solar energy. Now, this sounds science fiction-y to people. But, you know, and especially people who haven't been around since the 60s, because I was, you know, when 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 President Kennedy gave his speech and said, we're going to get to the moon, et cetera, and we're going to do all of this stuff. 
I remember well the, the pace at which we were able to proceed. There was a vision and there was a national will. Hey, we're going to do this thing. And by God, we did it. And then what happened is people got distracted. And what I kept hearing in the 70s when I was proposing, I remember how excited I got when I first realized that asteroids that could strike the Earth were loaded with resources, the, 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 the various kinds of things that we were destroying terrestrial habitat to mine, right? There were hydrocarbons in, in asteroids. There are precious metals. There are um, basically everything that we can extract from the Earth exists in space, right, in some form or another. And, you know, what's ironic here is that <clears throat> asteroids, which are incredible sources of wealth um, in terms of the precious metals that they, that they contain, in, in terms of the, the hydrocarbons they contain. Um, interestingly, the, the more dangerous they are, which is, is a function of how close they come to Earth, mm -hmm. right, the easier they are to access. And, and we're in a position now where it's no more unrealistic for us to be mining asteroids a decade from now than it was for us putting a man on the moon in 1960. I mean, we could literally be doing that. But, you know, it, it's going to take something. It's going to take a slap upside the head before people go, wait a second. You know what? We really are shooting ducks in a cosmic, sh uh, sitting ducks in a cosmic shooting gallery. Right. So we really would, are. What would you recommend then as far as that's, that's one thing to leap off into space, but how about protecting us? Like, is there well, anything uh, we can do? Is there anything we can do? Absolutely. We're, 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 you know, the thing is, is first of all, taking a census of the things that are out there, you know, we're doing that right now, which is, which is ongoing. And we're learning that there are large objects out there that, that could someday impact the earth, but are not a threat to us in the next century or two. There are some objects that look like they could potentially be threats within the next century, but we'd have to refine their orbits with a little more precision. However, I think that really the issue is, is the things like Tunguska and Chelyabinsk that are the smaller things that might sneak up on us undiscovered. Right. Now, those we might not be able to do anything about, really, at this stage. However, once we get out there, and we have, you know, we have industry in space and we have cities in space and we have ports at the, on the moon. Um, we're in a position now where we can essentially protect the planet from this point on. I mean, if we look at four billion years of planetary history, what we see is that great planetary catastrophes have been as much a part of the normal sequence of things as the slow, more gradual incremental changes that, that certainly do go on. We know, though, that the biological clock has constantly been reset. And there have been several events, the Permian-Triassic boundary, the Cretaceous-Tertiary boundary, um, the Silurian-Ordovician boundary, where life itself on the planet has hovered on the brink mm. of extinction. Now, you could say, well, that's part of the natural order of things, perhaps. I tend to think, though, that nature, in her infinite wisdom, has evolved a species with big forebrains 
because she wants one one species to be able to have foresight. And perhaps, you know, it has been said by a number of, of astronomers and, and, and geologists who have been looking at the record of, you know, mass extinctions and, and you know, unbelievably uh, powerful catastrophes in the history of the Earth that, well, hey, now Earth has one species out of all the millions of species that could actually do something to prevent those kinds of future catastrophes. And I think what that does is it, 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 it puts a, a, a whole new moral context into, you know, into the human species on Earth and what our role is. And yes, we have, we have destroyed some of the environment to extract resources to build this industrial base. People have to look at that as an interim phase, though. It's the interim phase that gets us from the Stone Age to the Cosmic Age. The Cosmic Age, where now life has now become invulnerable because it's no longer confined to the surface of a planet. Where if, if something doesn't intervene, whether it's you know 10,000 years from now or 1,000 years from now or a century or next year, something from space, the windows of heaven will open and something from space will come in and the whole order of nature will be completely disrupted. When the last ice age came on, think about this. How, how horrified would people be if the logging industry went out there and clear-cut every tree in Canada from the Atlantic to the Pacific and from the northern United States to the Arctic Circle and cut every single tree, right? We'd be horrified, wouldn't we? Well, that's exactly what the last ice age did. Yeah. Right? It completely wasted, wiped out 6 million square miles of land from the Atlantic to the Pacific, from the northern United States to the Arctic Circle. Do we stand idly by and allow that to happen, meanwhile beating ourselves up? Because we might be doing something which, by contrast, might actually be relatively insignificant. This is not to say, I'm not in any way meaning to imply that, hey, we should with impunity go and destroy the environment. No, because we absolutely must become caretakers of the terrestrial environment. But we also have to be realists and yeah. understand that, wait a second, yes, as significant as that our, our own impact has been, excuse me, people, but nature has some pretty big surprises in store for us if we think <laughs> that we are now the dominant force in na terrestrial nature. Yeah, interesting. So can we switch gears a bit and get into your uh, – into your, you're going to start a webinar, I think, in uh, uh, early to 2015. So what, what is that going to – I mean, there's so much information to cover here. We could talk about your sacred geometry and how that, that gets into the time scale of things. Like it's, it's, a, it's not really a coincidence that 26,000 years we keep talking about, it, and that seems to have some sort of connection as well. But what are you guys going to be teaching in your webinar? Well, the webinar is going to basically delve into symbolism. Uh, it's going to be symbolism we, we're going to draw from multiple sources because I want to elaborate on, on two things. One, this what we've been talking about is, in a sense, the negative side of the equation, right. the cataclysms, the destruction. There's another side of the equation as well. And, and, and a lot of the symbolism and teachings and stories, myths and, and archetypes that we've inherited from long ago, I think, are pointing in the direction of a type of technology if you will. In, in the series of articles that I've got posted on the Sacred Geometry website, if people would go there, 
read those articles. What I'm talking about there is essentially a tech, my interpretation of the grail mythos, which is this. It's a way of encoding information about a lost technology that can be employed to replenish and resurrect the planet in the wake of a cosmic catastrophe. In other words, to accelerate the recovery of nature in the event of a cosmic catastrophe. But not only that, to be utilized to uh, enhance the viability of nature on Earth. Um, so this is what it's going to get into. It's going to get into a lot of the ideas about why did ancient humans build this incredible infrastructure and why did they place structures where they did? And what is the connection between the ancient infrastructure of these archaic peoples and the geology of the earth and the cosmos above? Because as we mentioned earlier, all of the ancient infrastructure all over the planet has certain elements in consistency, such as an orientation to the sky. Well, I, I suggested that one reason for that was to actually be able to monitor events in the sky, mm. uh, thereby uh, giving a measure of predictability. Yeah. But I think it goes further. I think it also is that they understood that the that Earth, there was a constant exchange of energy between the Earth and the cosmos. And by building buildings in a certain way, placing them in certain positions on the, on the Earth, orienting them in certain ways to the sky, the, the interface of cosmic energy and terrestrial energy could be amplified in such a way that it could now be beneficial for the proliferation of life. And that's kind of what it, we're going to be getting into. So it's, it's, it's based around the symbolism of the grail. So if anybody's interested in learning more about it, you know, and, and this idea that the, 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 perhaps the same forces that could cause massive destruction can also be utilized for recreation. Uh, I think that's a very powerful idea. And I think that that's how archaic peoples looked at it, was that, that you see, when an object from space encounters the Earth, it injects all kinds of very interesting exotic materials into the biosphere. Platinum group metals, for example. Platinum group metals may turn out to be an important catalyst for evolutionary processes. Mm. They may be very important for uh, causing rapid genetic change in species. Um, we're already seeing that with, with the end of the Cold War, once we started uh, getting access to a lot of the research of the, the Soviets on Tunguska, we began to see uh, that there were actually uh, profound biological implications to that event. Um, there were genetic changes that occurred in those forests. There were species that had never been documented before that suddenly show up. Um, so there's this whole other side of the equation where, again, what I'm suggesting here is that our ancient ancestors were very much into this idea that there was this exchange and interaction between terrestrial life here below and the cosmos above. And so they attempted to harmonize their own cultural life and individual life with the, the forces and the, the, the cycles of the cosmos, not just the seasons. Those are the obvious ones. I mean, to any agricultural civilization, obviously one has to be immersed in the seasonal changes and the cyclical changes, clearly. But I think it went beyond that. I mean, because um, 
<clears throat> for one thing, uh, it's it's probable that we now know, by based on the architecture of the solar system, that alignments of the outer planets are critical for transferring cometary objects from the Kuiper disk to the inner solar system where they can become Earth crossers. And so it's very interesting that, that the patterns and forms that we look at in sacred geometry are recapitulated in the solar system. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that kind of gets into what uh, Ed Nightingale <laughs> was talking about at the symposium with um, um, the Giza plateau sort of being some sort of star map that's saying when, you know, when these alignments happen, fucking hit the deck. Yeah. Or conversely, when these alignment happens, uh, exploit the enhancement of, of energy that is, that is the byproduct of that. Um, I mean, there's so much interesting work out there that's emerging now. Um, uh, the dragon project, um, the Dragon Project, Paul, uh, Devendorf, Paul Devendorf, in his work. Devereaux. Sorry, hmm. not Devendorf. Oh, Devendorf. I've, heard, I've heard his name before, yeah. Yeah, really interesting work. And we, he and I did a, um, a um, joint interview a couple of years ago. Um, Paul Devereaux has been basically documenting and showing that many of these megalithic sites in the British Isles are oriented towards the geological fault lines in the crust. Okay, which to me brings in a whole other dimension to understanding what the, our ancestors were up to when they were building these structures because they weren't just randomly placed on the landscape. They seem to be clustered around zones of telluric energy, which is whether, whether it's geomagnetism or what it is, there does seem to be forces in the earth that can actually be measured You know, prior to an earthquake. There are uh, geomagnetic forces that occur that can actually induce ionization of the atmosphere. Ionization of the atmosphere can in turn have direct effects on the, the hippocampus of the human brain, mm. which is known to induce dreamlike states, prophetic states, visionary states. Um, also, there's been interesting studies uh, done showing um, you know, uh, germination of seeds how is rapidly accelerated when placed in some of these forest fields. And what it appears is that many of these structures were positioned with respect to the underlying geology, the fault lines, the ore deposits, the minerals, the, the precious metals, and so on, on some level. Um, like Paul Devereaux says, uh, it appears, and, and John Michel said this too, that our ancestors were not only uh, sophisticated astronomers, they were also sophisticated geologists. And, and I think that what we see there is essentially the literal manifestation of the alchemical dictum as above, so below. Because what they were doing was they were recreating the map of the heavens on the earth. But what's interesting is that these patterns that they were laying out on the earth were also related to the underlying geology, the structure of the lithosphere below. So I think what we're seeing here is a type of alchemical science where... <clears throat> The energies of the earth are fused with the energies of the cosmos. And there's a consequence to that that I think can actually be exploited technologically. And this might be what they were up to. So a big part of what this webinar is going to be about is exploring some of the basic principles there behind um, and, and how they have been encoded in symbolism. And I've chosen the grail symbolism because it seems to be quite apropos. In, in terms of, of the things that they are talking about here. Because you remember, what, if you remember the Grail story, what happened? Remember, 
the king was in decline, whether it was King Arthur or Anfortas or several of the other kings that are named. The fisher king that um, is laying up in his castle, unable to move because he's debilitated with this uh, unhealing wound. And whether it's Galahad or Percival or whoever the knight is that goes out and eventually finds the grail, hmm. what happens? He brings the grail back. He, the king is restored. But while the king is in decline, so is the land in decline. The kingdom is suffering from this same debilitating infirmity that the king is. The grail becomes the object that represents the means of restoring <clears throat> vitality and fertility and health, not only to the king, but to the land as well. <clears throat> and now, when we realize that the, that the grail mythos has its roots in the mid-sixth century, at the very at the in the stories of the Arthurian stories, you know, Arthur is is killed by Mordred at the Battle of Camelot, and the date of Camelot is usually given as around 540 A.D. 540 to 542 A.D. Right? Hmm. Well, dendrochronologists and other scientists have now documented that around between the mid 530s and the mid 540s, there was a major environmental catastrophe that affected the entire globe. Huh. Not, not on the scale of what we were talking about before, but enough so that forest growth in the Northern Hemisphere to, for 10 years almost came to a halt. This happened. And this was the onset of the Dark Ages. Okay, And what we now know, not only from, from proxy scientific records, but from the historical record itself, was that the Dark Ages was not just metaphorical. It really was dark for a long period of time. Now, the evidence is accruing that, yes, there was some kind of a cosmic encounter event. There's, there's um, uh, Dallas Abbott and her colleagues have documented that there may have been a major impact into the Pacific Ocean around that time. Uh, there's more evidence that perhaps there was another impact event off the coast of Norway that caused a 10-year environmental downturn. Okay, and, it, and it's this 10-year period that the Holy Grail stories are placed. That's their historical context, right? In, with this, uh, <clears throat> with this uh, environmental downturn, one of the things that was happened was there was multi-year collapses of agriculture. These multi-year collapses of agriculture caused famine to come on people. With people not getting nourished, their immune systems got weakened. And in 542 AD, uh, you had the Justinian plague that wiped out half the population of Europe in some places, third the population overall, but in some places half. In some places, whole areas were basically depopulated by that plague. And, and so what we see there is that was just a minor environmental blip. Now, what we see with the Grail mythos is it's placed within that historical context of this environmental collapse. When you read the stories about the wasteland, the, the, the Arthurian knights traveling over the wasteland seeking the Grail, which is the antidote to this. Well, we have to realize now that large parts of Europe, probably North America, were for about 10 years rendered as a wasteland. So, what I'm getting at is the grail is a symbol for the means by which vitality and vigor is restored to this debilitated landscape.
you see. Now, the same technology that could help to replenish the earth in the wake of a catastrophe may be actually the secret of the philosopher's stone itself. It may be the alchemical secret whereby we fallen angels can be restored to perhaps our rightful uh, our rightful place in the spiritual hierarchy of things. Because one of the you know one of the universal traditions from all over the ancient world is this tradition about universal destruction. Okay. But another one of those traditions is also the idea that there was another higher order of humanity, right? I mean, the biblical lifespan, the Bible is not the only place where this extent, vastly extended human lifespan shows up. Traditions, they're not as ubiquitous as the great flood traditions, for example, but they are very universal. This idea that there was a higher order of humanity that, that lived on a higher plane, um, and we are now in a fallen state. Well, I mean, the, the hardcore scientific reductionist is just going to roll his eyes at that. But I think that, again, what I'm trying to suggest to people is that we take a new look at these traditions that we've inherited from our ancestors. And there may be just unbelievably, unbelievable riches to be mined from the, the, the small fragments of ancient traditions that have survived the vicissitudes of the ages, both because of direct intentional destruction and just things being lost because of collapses of civilizations and cities and so on. But the small amount that we have obtained or, or retained could be immensely powerful and valuable in trying to come to terms with what we really are as human beings on this planet, where we've been and what we're capable of in the future. Huh, that's fascinating. Yeah, Harold was just commenting on that in the chat room about whether that information was passed down from a lost civilization and we have just lost the knowledge today and it sounds like you had answered that question yeah huh. well i think a large part of it has been lost but enough of the pieces remain these little specks that i think that by a, a careful and assiduous study and research by enough people we are connecting those dots yeah, we're, man, it, it, there's so much to talk about. Like the guys at Paradigm Symposium, some of the presenters there, we've been talking about. Um, Darren, who's that guy that uh, was talking, the uh, Irish guy that was talking about the ancient sites? Barry there. Fitzgerald. Yeah, yeah, Barry Fitzgerald was talking about, uh, you know, uh, these ancient sites that have special archaeoacoustic uh, properties and really basically change your consciousness there. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff like that. I think you're really going to enjoy uh, next year presenting along with these other people and being able to, to pick their brains. There was a lot of crossovers between all this research, and there's really a lot of dots being connected. So speaking of that... Um, do, what, what are you working on from between now and, and Paradigm Symposium, and, and uh, do you have any ideas of what you'd be presenting there? Because obviously you could do this for like two days straight, but you probably only have a slot that's going to be an hour and a half. So, You know, I, I honestly don't know yet. I guess I'm going to have to see where this, the next year takes us. Um, I'm trying to do a lot of writing. You know, I've been threatening to write a book for years, and I have been doing a lot of writing, posting these things online. And I need to get it into a form, a coherent form where it's all under in one place right i'm still a believer in, in the print media yeah um there'll always be a place for that listen when i'm at the beach i don't want my laptop i want a book <laughs> I, I can brush the sand off of my book or magazine no problem um but yeah and when i curl up in bed at night before i go to sleep i want a book i don't want to be sitting there with my computer same goes with the bath 
I mean, yeah, say in the bath. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and that's something I've actually st- I started taking baths again. I didn't take baths for years and years and years. Uh, but uh, I did take showers. I just didn't take baths, okay? <laughs> I'm on but strike I re- from I redis- either. <laughs> I've rediscovered the bath. And so I, I like to get in the bath. I've discovered I've got an ozone generator, and I put it in here. I don't know if it does a damn thing, but it sure makes me feel good. So I put that in the bathtub with me, and I sit there, and I have a book or a paper, and I read it. And it's Sometimes I even fall asleep. <clears throat> Anyways, um, yeah, uh, where we go the next year, I hope to get in some um, some more expeditions. I'm very much uh, leaning towards an expedition to the Azores, um, which links us, you know, to the whole to me the whole Atlantis story, uh, which yeah. is something I've been following keenly for a lot of years, um, and I have a lot to say on that. Probably not today in in this because I don't know how much time we have left, and it's. You need to give enough background in it. You know, and I talked about it on Joe Rogan's podcast. So if somebody goes online and listens to Joe Rogan's podcast 501, I do get into the whole Atlantis thing for for a while on there. Yeah, yeah. So what about uh, your – I would like you to review then for people uh, that they can go online on YouTube and see a summary of the DVD set that uh, – that you guys are making, but could you summarize that for people? Cause that, that truly blew my mind when I watched that. Uh, I'm going to have to order the DVDs as soon as you guys get them ready. And, and that's, that's just, I think that's something worth uh, telling people about. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, there, what I'm trying to do is to show that all of the stuff we've been talking about, um, the links between that and sacred geometry and how sacred geometry fits into the scheme of things, because sacred geometry had, multiple purposes. One, it, it provides a very potent symbolical vehicle for the perpetuation of, of information um, because of the fact that math, geometry is universal. Um, you know, the, the relationship between the circumference of a circle and its diameter is going to be the same no matter what culture you're from or what language you speak or what ethnicity or religious you, beliefs, none of that matters. It, it, it's a universal language, right? Sacred geometry is a very potent symbolical system that's come down to us from ages ago, and it's one means of, of perpetuating teachings, which I think not only can, can uh, reveal to us um, you know, ancient patterns of thought and, and belief and art and architecture, but also give us some powerful tools for the way we shape our own civilization from here on out. The idea is that there are, there are principles of harmony. And, and um, they, are, they can be uncovered and revealed through these processes of sacred geometry, linking uh, things into a system of, of symmetry, uh, balance, proportion, and ultimately harmony. And this gets us back again to the idea of the grail, uh, which is about restoring vitality to uh, uh, basically to a decimated landscape. And... and um, Sacred geometry would be a very powerful tool for that. You know, by profession, I'm a, a, a builder. I, we have a design-built company. So I'm trying to segue as much as possible into creating a market of people who want to experiment a little mm-hmm. and try uh, creating structures that utilize some of the ancient principles. So you use this so in your business, too? I've developed a system of, of modular uh, building design that's based upon sacred geometry. I don't know where I'm going to go with it yet, but I've, I've basically developed 
the, the working uh, elements of a system of modular construction that would integrate a small number of unified components into a harmonious whole. Nice. Perhaps even do it relatively economically. So that's something I've been working on. The, the DVD basically tries to show how sacred geometry integrates with all of these other traditions. So I begin by looking at the platonic solids and the numbers, the, 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 um, the canon of cosmic numbers that cascade out of those forms and patterns of sacred geometry and how they can be linked to the architecture of the solar system, the galaxy, how they can also be used to understand the unfolding temporal periodicities that we see manifested within these patterns of change that we've been talking about. Because it, it certainly seems like the great catastrophes don't come totally randomly. There's definitely a temporal pattern. Just like you mentioned the, the 26,000 years. Yeah, yeah. 26,000 yeah. years is one processional cycle. Most people have heard of you know, the age of Aquarius, the age of Pisces, and so on. What these are, of course, is the, is, the, is the time that the vernal equinox transits each of the 12 successive signs of the zodiac in turn. And if we go backwards from our own time for the last 2,000 years, the vernal equinox has been transiting through the star cluster of Pisces. Before that, it was Aries. Before that, it was Taurus, right? <clears throat> Before that, it was Cancer, Gemini, and then in Leo. Interestingly, these things that we were talking about that occurred, uh, the Younger Dryas and these catastrophes and all this, they were all concentrated in the in the uh, age of Leo. Hmm. The This fingerprints of this cosmic event that we were talking about, 12,900 years dated to. That was a number I'd come up with 20 or 30 years ago by looking at the traditional models and realizing that the traditional models were pointing directly to that episode, directly to that time period. So I was really quite thrilled in 2007 when the first hard scientific evidence started getting published that, yeah, something really did, something cosmic really did happen at that window between, at that cusp between Vir the age of Virgo and the age of Leo. And so... Is that a know, common a thread at the turn of the Graham, ages? Uh, Hancock and Robert Baval and John Anthony West were doing, you know, noticing that the orientation of the Sphinx was to the eastern sky during the age of Leo and pointing, saying... It seems that the that the whole Sphinx symbology is pointing to something important that happened at that age of Leo twelve thousand years ago. <sighs> so that was tremendously gratifying to me. And now the hard science is converging totally with the um, the more fringe uh, interpretations of traditional accounts. So this DVD is going to get into a lot of that. It's going to show how. The five platonic solids that were so-called so because they were so important to Plato, that in those platonic solids we find the cosmic numbers manifested that, that influenced the unfolding of these cosmic cycles, right? And so what we see, and in, in one of the important insights that I try to convey to people when we're talking about sacred geometry, because, you know, most people think geometry. They think space. They think patterns in, in space, Right. Sacred geometry is also a way of measuring time. So there's a sacred geometry of space, a sacred geometry of time, and the same canon of cosmic or sacred numbers <clears throat> that we find prolific in one, we find in the other. So that's 
a large part of what the DVD is about. Mm. Yeah, it sounds uh, fascinating. Yeah. Is, is there any way to use sacred also, geometry in your day to day? You know, we're we're on this end, you know, my business was thriving for, for years and then when the recession hit, you know, I my business like woolly mammoths, it was tottering <laughs> on the 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 verge of extinction for a while. I managed to hang in there and now it's coming back and you know, we're getting some good projects in. I hope it keeps up for a few years, but you know, we're always working on a shoestring and can use all the help we can get. You know, Cameron spends many, many hours working on this stuff virtually without any compensation at all. So it would be really great if, if, you know, a little bit, just a little bit of help, uh, could go a very long way. Um, you know, but we're getting to a position where I think, you know, what we've got is something that is of immense value. And as people begin to realize that, and as we get some more marketable commodities out there, whether it's books or DVDs or whatever, yeah. um, we should be doing fine. But yeah. in the interim, it's, you know, it's just getting over that critical hump that we're, that we're at right now. Did, did had that- I not had to, you know, watch my business almost evaporate during the recession, you know, I, you know, five years ago, I thought we were well on our way because I was doing great. I had million dollar projects going on and literally within a couple of months, it all evaporated. Did that help with the genesis of, of what you're doing now? You know, it's just like we're talking about here. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's like what happens on the grand cycles can also happen on the individual level as well. There is this, parallelism this go that goes on you know catastrophes on our own personal life can be echoes of catastrophes that happen to the life of the planet well i think your time is here and you're getting some focus here with uh from a lot of people i mean and i and i did that did that downturn help you uh help the genesis of this new path you're on uh if you look at the credits you'll see everyone who contributed to that is listed and uh anyone who's bought the dvd before the updated version is produced, uh, just know that you're enabling this great work to move forward. And the version of the film you receive, it's it's completely adequate. It's just that we hold ourselves to a higher standard. And because of lack of funds and stress, it wasn't uh, when we did the punch out, checking out the work, we didn't actually uh, feel that it was the best product we were capable of. But of course, paying the bills, keeping the lights on, those types of things are an internal stress we all can relate to. And so if people want the information, it is there. There's nothing wrong with the DVD. It's just that we now have a better, faster computer. So some of the edits that were clunky can be refined. The graphics that I produced, uh, I've, I've, I've switched the format. If you look at the version available on our YouTube channel, the first 2.5 hours are given away at no charge. There's yeah. mind blowing information encoded there. Uh, you have, you know, evidence of the, the size and shape of the earth being encoded in the Great Pyramid and the Parthenon. Uh, you've got the, the sacred geometrical connections to the cycles of time being presented with the huge revelation at the end, which you know we're not putting out there just yet, but for people who do purchase the current version, you will be at the front of one of the greatest revelations of all time, bar none. Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> Randall doesn't like to uh, promote himself in that manner. That's kind of my job. <laughs> 
but I have to eat <laughs> and I have to have computers at work in order to get this information out there. It took us six years to get him on Rogan again because I introduced him to Rogan in 2008 at the Punchline Comedy Club, and that's on our YouTube channel. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to sound bitter or anything, but it is a struggle. And if if you order the DVD when the updated version is ready, I, I guarantee you'll get a copy of it either the download. Uh, or if you pay for shipping, I'll pay for the cost of the production of the DVD, the new version, and the Blu-ray and send it to you. But that money is essential in keeping the lights on. That's where the lion's share of any money Sacred Geometry International makes each month, and it's not a lot, comes from. So thanks for letting me interject. Just wanted to get that out there. And I guarantee anyone who watches that film, you're not going to be the same. Prepare for the red pill, shake down, come down. <laughs> oh, yeah. I could, I could tell the, the quality was great on the uh, YouTube channel. So I'm going to check out now. Sorry for the interjection. Thanks for having Randall on the show. Hey, no problem. Yeah, no, that's great. I can vouch for the quality of that YouTube channel, and and uh, I can just see the DVDs will be will be good. So, Randall, can you hear us okay now? Oh yeah, well, everything's good. And clear. All yeah, right. Well, no, that's no, that's good. I mean, I wanted to I wanted to get your take on that uh, on the DVD to summarize it, and now we got uh, Cameron's as well. So you know. Yeah, people donate, buy the DVDs, all that stuff is good. Uh, is there anything else you guys want to say before we start wrapping it up? I, you know, I've said quite a bit. I think, you know, there's enough for people to digest. Um, if you've got any final questions or whatever, um, yeah, I'm sure as soon as we sign off, I'll be thinking of a half a dozen more things <laughs> that I should have said. Yeah, I mean, we want to kind of avoid the the whole global warming thing and all that. I mean, there's so many things to talk about it, but but uh, we just really uh, appreciate your research and we appreciate your time coming on. I mean, we're gonna, like I said, we're gonna link to everything in the show notes, and we're looking forward to seeing you again in Minnesota at Paradigm. I mean, I think you're gonna have a great time with all the other uh, researchers and hanging out. Oh, I know I will absolutely. Well, I did last time, so yeah, I, I'm sure it'll be even better next year. Yeah, this time hopefully you'll be here the whole time. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had some fun. We did. I think stepping outside. Yeah, stepping outside of the box. <laughs> yeah, stepping outside of the box. <laughs> Those are the best times. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's what's wonderful about these things is is they're serving to bring people together from all over. You know, and it's that's what's going to really. That's that's what's going to catalyze this paradigm shift. You know, I mean, you, what you guys are doing and what what so many people are doing and and you know it's it's great to for me to finally start getting a little bit of recognition. Um yeah. but you know, Graham has been doing this for for 20 some years pushing the envelope, you know, and and he's you know, he's been a pioneer because, you know, when he started putting out some of these ideas uh, you know, mainstream academia just savaged him. Um, very, you know, um, really not, not in a, a responsible way at all, you know? Um, but I think, you know, what he has done is, is, is definitely held the test of time. You know, and Graham, like a lot of us researchers, we're trying to look at so much information and pull so many things together that, yeah, sometimes you're going to, you're going to say something or put some information in that later proves to be, uh, to, to be wrong, but it, it doesn't discredit the whole thesis that there's another way of looking at history. Yeah. But what these guys do, what the critics do is they will seize upon one little thing that in no way discredits the whole thesis at all. But then they will try to, 
put the complete focus on that as if it does, as if the whole idea of there being a lost history is completely discredited because, you know, somebody makes one misstatement in, you know, a five or 600 page book. Yeah. Yeah. That's just amassed a tremendous amount of material. And, you know, to the, you know, to the uh, uncritical thinker who might read a, a review um, where, you know, it's basically just this smarmy attitude about, oh, yeah, well, we know what the fringe researchers think, you know, <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll, they'll fall for that. And they won't, you know, you, I don't want to get into the global warming thing. You brought it up. But, you know, perfect example of how you get some information out there and the critics, there are critics of that. And what happens is that the defenders of the Algorian orthodoxy will seize upon the fact that perhaps one guy who made a critical remark about the global warming consensus once, you know, got $1,000 from some tobacco-related industry. And then that discredits every criticism about the Algorian hypothesis. Yeah, yeah. You know, but it's the same thing with a, a researcher who's going against the grain. But now I think that there's enough people out there and enough information and young academics and young scientists who are more open-minded and don't have a vested interest in protecting the establishment paradigm who are willing to look at this and go, you know what, there really is another version of this story of the human presence on Earth. There is a deep history and it has been lost and we need to know why it's been lost. And what are the implications of, of knowing this for our own future? Have you got any pushback yet yourself? And, and if not, are you prepared for it? Oh, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't bother me. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I've gotten some pushback. You know, um, I noticed when I did Rogan's and I had some rather critical comments about the global warming consensus, most of the negative feedback that came in was addressed to that. Because what you heard repeatedly was, well, who's this guy? There's a 97% consensus. <laughs> yeah. You know, never mind. Look, if you bothered, if you took 10 minutes to look at the source of that so-called 97% consensus, you would realize that it was totally contrived and totally bogus. And I would be glad to spend an hour sometime with you guys exposing what a fraud that consensus really is. We actually, so some, synchronistically, yeah, we just finished talking with uh, Ben Davidson right before this interview, and we were talking about exactly that. I'm not familiar with Ben Davidson. What did he have to say? He he said that the reason why that, that he he basically uh, debunked the whole 97 percent thing, right? He he does this mobile observatory, goes around looking at the solar activity. So he's he's uh, he's looking at the the solar connection with global cooling right now, as opposed yeah. to yeah yeah, it's very very much along the same lines as as you were saying and. He basically debunked the whole 97% thing, basically saying that it was 97% of the people that were already part of the IPCC already sort of bought into the climate change and global warming thing. Yeah, or, and well, it's like this. If you ask, I, I'm surprised it wouldn't be 100% consensus because if the question is, are humans influencing the climate? Well, yes, of course humans are influencing the climate. But that's not really what the consensus is about. It's about something else altogether. So, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I could go on about that, but but I won't in this venue today. Yeah, no, that's... 
<laughs> that's good. It's probably better we don't. So, anyways, yeah, that's uh, let's let's start wrapping this thing up. We'll link to everything in the show notes, and we'll see you hopefully in in person again in October. If you come by Calgary uh, to visit Okotoks and anything in Banff, whatever, make sure you look us up. Well, actually, that's one of the trips I really would like to do next summer. I would like to actually follow the Erratics train right up to its source. Nice, and then and then move on up because I'm looking. What I want to do is is build a case that the source of these tremendous floods that Graham and I were looking at in October was actually up in British Columbia. And a potentially examine an area up there that I think potentially is a is a good site for a possible impact site. Nice. Where, yeah. So, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll hook up and you guys can tag along. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah we're sure. in. Yeah. We could be your Sherpas. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I always need somebody to carry the, my gear. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And perhaps if we get up on the mountainside to carry me back down. <laughs> right on. All right, well, give us a little bit of heads up so we can get in hiking shape. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, I'll, thank- be working, I'll be working on that myself all winter. Right on. And thanks a lot for, uh, for your time, and good luck uh, finishing your book off there. Hopefully you get some time to write. I'm I'm making a time. I'm I've been writing regularly. I've kind of gotten into the habit, but you know, ironically, now my business has has really started going strong again, and I'm looking at some some pretty significant projects. But those projects should basically finance my upcoming expeditions. Nice, as, nice. as they did in the past. Nice, right on. Yeah. All right, Dan, you got anything else? No, I just like to say thanks again, Randall, for coming to Grimerica. And uh, yeah, we, we'll have to keep in touch, and we can uh, you can keep us up to date with any new new details. And 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 before, let us know uh, before the webinar is coming up. Give us the dates, and we can we can push uh, yeah, push totally. it as far as yeah, we can reach. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right yeah it's a lo- it's a lot of fun hanging out with you guys, both um, over the internet and in person. Yeah, right on. Thanks. <laughs> okay, right. Randall. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. I plan to. All right. Okay, take care. So long, guys. And that was another fascinating chat with Randall Carlson. What'd you think, Darren? I can't remember. <laughs> why, why is that? Does it, is it too mind blowing for you? Or? Yeah. And, uh, the whole holiday and everything oh, yeah, now right. and then, but I know, I know it was mind blowing for sure. Yeah. I'm it, probably going to check out the webinar tomorrow. Oh yeah, I am for sure. I've what time is up. it? I've ordered the CDs too. Cause that's, I gotta, I gotta 
take a look at the CDs. I saw the YouTube videos. Remember a while back before we had yeah. them on the first time? Yeah. And I'm going to like just sit back one day on a Saturday and just watch all those DVDs because it's it, it truly is like it's it's game-changing shit, I think. We should make a day of it sometime. Yeah, yeah, we should do that. And uh, I don't know, when I hear Randall talk like that, it, it seems to, for me, it puts things into perspective, you know? It's like he's he's kind of thinking about that, the big sort of, the big deal shit, right? You know, that we're not too, we're, we're delicate. It reminds me that we're a delicate culture and delicate, we're in a delicate situation, right? We're just one big asteroid away from destruction. Speak for yourself. Oh, you got a bunker over here? I'm fucking prepper, buddy. <laughs> what do you got? What do you got some... And cans of beans in the back, or what? That's spam and a pistol. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The pistol's not real. No, it's just a fake, uh, an old fake one. Oh, there it is. But I could still pistol whip, whip, pistol whip you with it pretty good. Yeah, probably. All right, the kisser. Yeah, no, it was good. Randall, of course, is welcome back uh, anytime. Um, Yeah, we're lucky to lucky to be able to chat with him as much as we had already. So. I'm looking forward to uh, to the book's release. Yeah, yeah, and more of his work. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Who do we got coming up next? We have Ben Davidson. Yeah, Ben Davidson comes out next Friday. Yeah. Bada bing, bada boom. That's a big one. That's a good one. And we got a couple more in the can. We have to release too. So we've got a double header live coming up on Tuesday. S- January sixth. Yeah, we are the uh, the first. Uh, I think the first show to talk about Scott Russell's uh, take on oh, Coral Castle. On, fucking uh, yeah, how how uh, Ed Leeds Gallen Ca- built the Coral Castle. Coral Castle exposed. Yeah, Coral Castle exposed. You heard it here. The other side of the story. I like that. And then who? Dave Matheson. Yeah, on the Undying Stars and all the Solarian symbolism. So that's a doubleheader on Tuesday live. The gong show getting that whole thing together was. Eh? We'll save that yeah. I think for the for the interview. Yeah, but that was quite a weird little turn of events trying to get that all lined up. Yeah, totally. So in the meantime, send us your feedback. We love it. Uh, synchronicities. Psychedelic.ca slash iTunes. Wow, you gonna interrupt me? Plus to review. Right. Or feedback at Graham at GrahamAmerica.com. Psychedelic experiences, lucid dreams, crazy UFO sightings, whatever you want. And then Twitter, uh, tweet Darren at, uh, at GrahamAmerica. Twitter paid me. Twitter paid you. And you can check out the show notes for links of how to leave a voicemail and how to donate to the Money Bomb, support the show. No ads, no corporate sponsorship, nothing. Just... Hours and hours of fascinating chat to listen to. Yeah, exactly. Hours and hours of fucking rambling ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just send your cash. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that about wraps it up. Look out for us next week uh, with Ben Davidson. Uh, check out all the links in the show notes. We'll have uh, fucking a list of all the shit we talked about, all the music you heard, all the shit we want you to do. So take a look at Graham's honey-do list. And um, it's the doobie doobie do list. Honey doobie 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 I had someone else say, now you fucked me. Sorry, buddy. Um, but so anyway, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. And uh, 
If case you guys didn't notice, we've switched it. So now we have album art rocking the... Most of your pod players should change the album art for every guest now. Or every episode should be different art. So, Merry Christmas.